In 2018, at the world premiere for The Woman Who Fell to Earth, the first Doctor Who episode to feature Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor, Tozen Cole as Ryan, and Chris Chibnall as showrunner, Chris Chibnall said to the press regarding Ryan's dyspraxia that, We did a lot of research into that with the Dyspraxia Foundation. The script team have been working with those guys. It was important because people live with these things. I have a nephew with dyspraxia. It's a relatively common thing among kids. So it's important to see that heroes come in all shapes and sizes. That's the most important thing about Doctor Who, and you're going to see that a lot this year. And Tozen Cole added, It's important for people to know that anything is possible. You can overcome anything by just cracking on. That's my two pence on it. Today, we're going to have a discussion and deep dive into Ryan and his dyspraxia, looking at what dyspraxia is and how it gets represented in media, the fundamentals of representation in the first place, how Ryan's dyspraxia was handled on Doctor Who, different perspectives on that representation, and we will go and comb through all the clips I could find from Ryan's time on the show that relate to his dyspraxia, and we will have a big fruitful discussion on those. Who are we to discuss all this? I'm Neo from Australia, and I'm very happy to be joined by Moon and Nix from the UK. Why don't you two kick things off by introducing yourselves and sharing why you feel this is an important conversation to have? I am Nix. I'm a Scottish trans man living in England. I have dyspraxia, obviously, and a bunch of interesting and interconnected conditions. I think I feel really strongly about about representation and I'm very interested in sort of critical analysis of representation in part because as a trans person at the moment, the question of representation is a little bit relentless. So yeah, I think I'm quite interested to tie in some of my thoughts and feelings on representation as a topic, um, how it relates to sort of art and creative media and stories, um, and how it all of that relates to sort of where we were where we're at when um, the Chibnall era was starting and where we're at now. Yeah. I am Moon J. Cobweb, um, a butler and a writer. Mm. I think this is probably giving a little bit away ahead of time, but um, it has been a bit of a journey going back over these issues relating to Ryan and sort of putting myself back in the mindset that I was in when I was sort of first watching this come out. And crashing that a million miles an hour into some of the things I feel now reflecting on the era. I probably should have in any way cited my own um, neurodivergences, including relevantly dyspraxia. Uh, How would you define it then for people who are unfamiliar with it or are only vaguely familiar with dyspraxia from the sort of coverage on Doctor Who? It's a tricky question. So there's actually, there's a definition in one of the very useful quotes that you, you linked us yeah, there's a few things in these articles. I'm interested in hearing how uh, they do or they don't or they do to a degree sync up with your actual lives and lived experiences. So from that Radio Times, how Doctor Who tackles dyspraxia in Series 11 article, that's the one that talks about quotes at the screening of the one who fell to Earth, Chibnall's nephew, all that sort of thing. Uh, the definition it gives for dyspraxia is dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder is a lifelong condition affecting motor coordination, organization, perception, language, and thought, and is often described as a, quote, hidden condition, end quote, that few know much about. Although the exact causes are unknown, 
Dyspraxia has been theorized to be caused by a disruption in messages between the brain and the body. And then it goes on a bit. Um, do you have any thoughts on the other things that article offers like as a definition? Then it goes on to sort of talk about um, the standard list. And I think we were, we, we were reflecting because we've read like the Wikipedia description and the Dyspraxia Foundation description to just sort of touch base with the difference between how we talk about dyspraxia because we're we're very interested in our own condition. I think we've bounced a lot of things back and forward between each other and other dyspraxic people that we're in a broader community with over the years. And it's interesting to look back and see sort of what, what the two-sentence intended summary is. How it was put to me really helpfully by a neurodivergence mentor via my work was that you can sort of split the symptoms of dyspraxia into into three major quadrants sort of macro movements, micro movements, and sequence processing. Macro movements is is the, the big famous bit, you know, the fact that I walk into doors, the fact that Ryan can't ride a bike, um, the fact that I knock pint glasses off of other people's tables all the time and have to explain that I'm, I'm not drunk, I've got a disability. Um, then there's also micro movements. Um, which are the smaller, fiddly, fiddlier things. I have some actual physical problems speaking and had to have speech therapy um, when I was very small because I couldn't say some letters and I still find speaking a bit hard sometimes. I also don't hold a pen like a reasonable human being at all um, and was sort of ritually humiliated for this uh, throughout most of school. And now, now I'm quite proud of it, but it does wreck my hands. Um, and then the sequence processing is the bit that's probably referenced the least um, but I think, and Min will probably come in on this in a second, is one of the bits I find the most salient and underlying and feel like it speaks to some of the internal experiences of dyspraxia. I'd say I don't have a normative relationship with sequence. My brain can take in very long sequences and put them back out again in just sort of any order. I find sequences being disrupted to be incredibly difficult. So I find it, say, for example, hard to accept help if cooking because I don't see cooking as a series of small tasks that I'm putting in order. The only way I can do a task like cooking is to have this one big block thing that is, you know, make an omelette and that starts happening. And if someone was to come in and just move the chopping board, it's like, I have no idea what's going on now because, because this just isn't broken down in my brain. That's how, that's how I get around it. Um, another thing is, is, is maths. I'm quite good at maths, but I do maths in a like completely unreasonable way. Um, and have gotten trouble my whole life for laying out my working in ways that just, just read as incoherent to most people. Yeah. I mean, anything you want to... Yeah. So I would say the way I relate to my dyspraxia, and this isn't necessarily a position that comes from the mainstream of academic analysis on the condition, this comes from my own study of my own experiences, is that I think what connects all of those disparate manifestations, the macro, the micro, the sequence processing, is they're all ultimately related to memory and not in the sense of like, you know, amnesia, although I do have a complicated memory, I am known to forget things, but in the sense that like, remembering the order things going in remembering things like muscle memory are harder for my brain to train itself to do than for most people. And I have found that framing it in these terms, other dyspraxic people who have never encountered this 
suggestion of sort of the causal order of the condition, I like, yeah, you know, that does actually make a lot of sense. But that is ultimately something that I have come to as a reflection on the condition for me. It is not information you will find on Wikipedia or even the Dyspraxia Foundation page. So take that with a pinch of salt. I will say a model that has been useful for me understanding my own dyspraxia is sort of probabilistic. If there is an A-B binary in a situation, turn left or turn right, my brain doesn't quite accept that there is a 100% guaranteed correct answer to that. It's like 99% of the time you should absolutely turn left when walking to the street down the garden path. But 1% of the time, for the sake of variety, you should turn right, even though it's the wrong way. And it's like that with every single tiny little thing in the world. There is a randomised chance that my brain will go, what you need to do is do the one you don't often do, because sometimes it's important to do the one you don't often do. And there are situations where that's very true, and situations where that's not. And my brain can't really tell the difference between those. Yeah, if I can add a layer on onto that, that's sort of... A, a, a related framework that I think is very structural to how I understand what's going on in my brain um, is an idea of having a problem with the formation of habit, like the mechanical and neurological formation of habit. Um, and this was sort of filtered down to me by someone that works um, in kind of disability research. So it's, it's, it's a bit similarly fraught, um, but I'd be interested if like the intense world theory of autism, this is something that sort of crops up again um, further down the line as it's a more fully-fledged idea. Um, but yeah, the idea is that experientially, most of the things I do, I'm doing for the first time. I don't, my body doesn't learn things and I am able to lean on the mental shortcuts that come with having done things before. And that actually carries across everything. And I find that that sort of explains the disparate issues from the fact that, like, I will walk into the doors in my own house, not even consistently at random, if I'm not paying attention to where they are. I don't just pick up my keys because that's the thing I need to do when I'm leaving the house. Like, nothing just happens. Every single thing is quite a... Uh, Sort of focused and deliberate motion and that requires a lot more executive function constantly which is knackering it means that there's a lot more things go to hell much more quickly i can't rely on my brain or my body to just be able to do things that they've been able to do in the past but it does come with the benefit i think that you do learn interesting things about the world and the things that you do if every time you do them you're doing it for slightly the first time so yeah, that's, like, that's, that's, that's sort of a big exploded diagram um, of dyspraxia. I think one of the reasons why we've both ended up at sort of these little narratives and personal core central myths is that that is something that's kind of missing from a lot of descriptions of dyspraxia that you get handed. You know, you, you, get, you get informed, like, congratulations, you can't ride a bike, you can't hold a pen, there's a word for that. Um, and then you've sort of got to go about and live your life with this sense that there's this disparate world of things that you can't do for some reason. They've all got one name. And I think if you're quite a narrative person, there's a natural tendency to try and find something that pulls that together into a coherent experience um, rather than just sort of being a big list. Yeah, that's all super well said. That's that's really, really interesting. From there, do you want to start talking about representation more or do you want to talk about any more 
baseline theory dyspraxia stuff or disability intersection stuff? Where would you guys like to head from there? I suppose on the note of disability intersection stuff, it is probably worth flagging the dyspraxia is often comorbid with other conditions, particularly autism and ADHD, which are both much better represented in the cultural conversation and I think have more that quality than Nix was just acknowledging of there being a narrative around them. You don't just get told this is the condition and these are the symptoms. You sort of, particularly within the past decade and on the culture on the internet, you get a sense of the culture around it, of what it is like to relate to other people and what the world is like from this perspective. Because people have done that learning and done that sharing and generated memes and the conversation is further forward. And I am autistic. Um, which is not something I always recognise about myself because it presents a bit atypically, but I, I certainly am, and the intense world actually is a model of understanding autism that helped me to be like, oh, wait, I really relate to that. It just doesn't present to me in all of the ways that it's standardly described in culture. Yeah, I think there's something interesting there. So we've referenced a few times the intense world theory of autism, which is one of many theories, and I'm not an expert in autism or any of these. So, so. Um, you know, with a pinch of salt, I think I, I would say I'm more talking to cultural narratives within disability communities that have been handed down to me. I've done a bit of my own research on these things, but often how I'm talking about them is in terms of uh, sort of more local cultural narrative. And I say this a bit carefully because I know that things that are my actual academic specialist topic can end up really distorted in how people talk about them between friends. Um, but yeah, with that noted, the intense world theory of autism is is Broadly, this shifting away from looking at autism as a set of symptoms and more towards looking at it as, okay, an experiential condition where autistic people have very intense just sensory input. The autistic people are experiencing lights brighter and sounds louder. Um, and also worth, worth saying, I'm not sure if I have already that I'm autistic. I had this sort of concept explained to me by a friend in part of my sort of journey to being diagnosed with autism and was really struck by it as like, oh, this, I've, I, I have always sort of identified with um, bits and pieces of descriptions of like what autism is, what the end product is. Um, but what I've always been doing is weighing up the output of me, sort of the, what, the little ticker that comes out of the machine with this list of like, well, these are the autism things. Am I, am I, is my output lining up with the autism things? If it's not, then I'm not autistic. And if it is, then I am. And that's how this works. And this is so, sort of the first time someone described it to me. I was like, oh God, I genuinely never thought about this in terms of how I experience the world. I was really thinking about this constantly in terms of how successful a facsimile of a normal person I am performing. Um, but what you have said now gets sort of below the skin of that and confronts me with thinking about myself at all. And I think that's important, actually. I th and I think that that point will end up interrelating with some of the things I want to say about um, representation and Ryan and how his character is approached. But yeah, I think there are increasingly sort of community-built descriptive narratives of, of what it's like to be autistic and what it's like to have ADHD, that people are bouncing around them within communities. And to my knowledge, the, the dyspraxia hasn't quite had that moment 
yet, at least at the same level, with the same level of interconnection. I think it's having a bit of a moment like that, or it has done in our direct friend community of neurodivergent people, where a lot of us are dyspraxic. But yeah, it's still a ways from broaching the mainstream and really to glance in the direction of the uh, the meta topic here. Ryan as a character could be accused of taking us a little further in terms of sheer exposure to the abstract concept, but perhaps falling short in terms of that specific goal, that idea of, you know, getting at the interiority. How would you say representation of dyspraxia uh, generally is then in the mainstream, both in uh, fictional representations, but also maybe association with celebrities or well-known people or anything like that? How is it generally, do you think, over at least the past decade or so? Thin on the ground, I would say, honestly. I mean, I'm very possibly missing things. I'm not necessarily the most in popular culture person. I could easily be overlooking some, you know, important landmark examples. And do feel free to cite any at me, um, because I'm, I'm genuinely curious. We should talk about um, space dyslexia and Spock. Yes, we absolutely should. Um, at a personal level, prior to um, Ryan Sinclair, the most that I have felt in any way acknowledged by direct representation in some media that I've sat down and watched was the near example of the Star Trek Discovery Season 2 interpretation of the, at this stage, legacy character of Spark from Star Trek the Original Series, who is retconned in Star Trek Discovery to have a condition which is described as an explicitly alien Vulcan condition, but comparable to dyslexia, which is often comorbid with dyspraxia, and indeed which I have. But this is sort of a weird coded way of actually doing dyspraxia because at no subsequent point is their condition ever really used in relation to their relation to writing words and language it's basically straightforwardly quite a compellingly nuanced not just off the shelf depiction of dyspraxia a lot of the things i would have liked to see with ryan as a character are got at with this version of Spock, and I quite liked it. Oh, it's described as spatial and order dysphasia. Yeah, it's it's yeah specific. I thought it would, I thought I would look up the specific receipt on this because I don't think they initially um, describe it as like dyslexia in the show. I think they do eventually, but I think it's introduced with its Vulcan name, and it's a condition of like relationship to space and order or sequence processing and I, I remember also just sort of latching onto that and being like damn that's not just talking about dyspraxia that's getting at the bits that I have worn thin like sort of repeating to people it's like oh you might think that this is just about me being clumsy but actually it's an interesting condition that affects all sorts of different like you've got straight to the heart of the interesting bits like cool <laughs> and to be fair similarly to dyslexia there's a lot going on in dyslexia that isn't talked about in that kind of depth but yeah sorry that's my that's my little uh, i'm just gonna say that like i am certain that relatively quickly it is likened to dyslexia specifically because i remember sort of finding that just a little disheartening 
and then having a mixed experience with the degree to which it then went on. Like, it feels like, and this is wild speculation, but it feels like the at some stage in the, you know, drafting process, it was likened to dyslexia, and then someone said, you can't put that, no one knows what that is. No, likened to dyspraxia, rather. Aha, you see the thing where there's an AB binary and I automatically reach for the wrong one. Um, <laughs> oh, I, meant to, I, I did meant to say earlier when we were describing that the uh, phenomenon of other left i think we've basically st we've basically stopped using the word right in real life it's just left and other left because there's no point saying left or right because the the output is going to be so random that just say left and if the direction they pick is wrong say other left <laughs> mm. Um, yes, and that's, that's probably that for um, specific personal experiences of something which is directly textually acknowledged to be dyspraxia or dyspraxia-like that have felt like important representation to me at a personal level. But again, if, if there are any examples of dyspraxic characters in things that are relatively high profile that I just haven't seen at all, I'm very interested. I was going to say, if anyone wants to recommend dyspraxic characters we might have missed in the YouTube comments, then throw them at us. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting how few relatively well-known characters in pop culture we can really come up with there. I'm aware of some celebrities with it. I've seen some press over that. I know Daniel Radcliffe has it because he talks about it occasionally. Uh, but it seems to be one of those things, even if people are open about having it, it doesn't get talked about that much anyway uh which i think is interesting i think it's lesser known and lesser talked about uh than maybe some comparable things we've been talking about and so that's really interesting uh because it's not like something exceedingly rare or anything so why is the discussion on it relatively slighter I think that's curious. Yeah, I mean, the stats are something ridiculously high. Um, I was looking on the Dyspraxia Foundation page, and it's something like um, 3% of the population or something, which, you know, out of 103 is a small number, but if in every 100 people, three of them are dyspraxic, that's that's a gratuitously high number. And yet, yeah, no, it's it's underrepresented in like both media and cultural conversation. Yeah, I don't know the methodology, and I guess therefore the veracity of it. But the uh, Dyspraxia Foundation organization, their website uh, says it affects around five percent of school-aged children. In their words, this might interconnect with. Thank you. This might interconnect with um, things we will go on to talk about with regards to Ryan. Um, but I think something that stood out to me from just reading the basic background materials um, is that there's really not a lot of focus on what adult dyspraxia looks like and what being a dyspraxic adult looks like in a way that's probably actually comparable to where we were at with, say, autism and ADHD um, not super long ago really at all. Like, I think there's been a big shift towards people getting adult diagnoses of autism and ADHD and sort of that point about um, cultural narrative and self-narrative and community narrative have generated sort of ideas about what adults with these conditions are like. Whereas I think there was an amount of emphasis on 
children, the issues children have, the extent to which dyspraxia is sort of a, a repairable condition with early intervention. Um, in sort of some of the first layer of resources about dyspraxia that did did stand out and it felt like it wasn't focusing on constructing a conversation about what adult dyspraxia looks like. Um, and I think that might really interrelate with the ways in which people don't talk about it because, you know, being clumsy is being clumsy. Being severely clumsy, having real sort of motor, motor coordination issues can be something people feel very privately about, can feel quite embarrassed by. And a lot of the other aspects of it aren't necessarily known or understood. Um, so I wonder how many people don't have sort of a joint up understanding of how different issues in their life um, interrelate. Certainly I see in sort of, you know, poppy little listicles or memes about ADHD, a lot of conditions that like a lot of symptoms and things that I relate to, but I, I don't have ADHD. I've checked and I astonishingly, one of the few people I'm at all close to myself, um, <laughs> don't have an attention disorder. I just don't. I, I have a level of attention span that has its limits, but is ultimately within what I would consider somewhere around the average. So those conditions that I relate to in those lists can't be ADHD necessarily. I mean, they can be, but they might also be dyspraxia. And there's a degree to which I feel like some of the space around some of the lesser known symptoms is sort of eaten up by them possibly being in comorbid conditions. So people will go, oh, it must be the ADHD that's meaning that I'm forgetting things. Yeah, I mean, I had this with my um, autism assessment. They were like, oh, you're, you already have ADHD and dyspraxia. It could be quite hard to qualify whether you have autism. On the uh, representation angle we're talking about, can we talk a little bit about this is the sort of thing that will feel like beyond obvious for some people and beyond opaque for some other people. Uh, but can we talk a little bit about why it feels important or valuable to actually see yourself, to theoretically see yourself represented in these ways, like to see a character with dyspraxia as a major character on a big show before getting into how that uh, was actually depicted and how that was achieved and how it was done. Just hearing kind of in the headlines, there's going to be a major character with dyspraxia on Doctor Who. Uh, how did that make you to feel? Or how would that make you feel uh, if you heard it now uh, without getting into how it was done? Just kind of the baseline of there's going to be this sort of representation. Why is that important? Or what would you guys say to that? Honestly, and like there's a bunch of valid and valuable sort of politicizing on the issue to be done but straight up number one feels good you know like there's a degree to which it matters because it's nice because when i heard about this as a thing it just made me happy and got me at a like oh that makes me feel represented level that i think i've struggled necessarily to feel in a lot of other contexts you know like there's life is intersectional i am a number of things as a person and some of those things i see a lot in media and some i don't and i don't think i've ever had an experience that's made me feel like the sugar rush oh this is good stuff but that representation is often cited as you know having a quality of at times for people who feel underrepresented as much as hearing about ryan and that matters just that feeling and the fact the knowledge that I shared that moment with 
so many other dyspraxic people who care enough about Doctor Who to have been paying attention. Um, like, oh, oh, me in the thing. I get to be in the thing in some abstract sense. That's that's nice and good and right. Yeah, that's that's very well put. Um, and I think, yeah, spe- speaks to something that it is important to take a moment to do, which is like, like we, we were speaking to each other um, long distance after the airing of Women That Fell to Earth. Um, and I was on a long sort of far out pivot of not being very connected to Doctor Who or fandom at the time, but I was watching this coming out live and also binging the Capaldi era at a terrifying rate because I was, I was, the meteor was coming back round. Um, so yeah, I was, I was very excited about Doctor Who in general at that moment and having this big wave of sort of reconnection to these ideas and the imagery. Um, and we were, we were so happy. Like we were, properly sugar rush enthused and yeah i think i i struggle to frame beyond that you know this amount of this is important for any particular structural reasons i think it is just that it it, it does induce those feelings particularly particularly taking note of like like doctor who's role in british culture in particular the it's mode as an ongoing cultural conversation that Britain is having with itself. The knowledge that this isn't just like, oh, dyspraxia has been mentioned on my nerd thing that I like. That's nice. I like it when it's my nerd thing that's on, and I like to hear the words that I am. They're together. Wow. It's it's the looking at this and being like, no, no, this this isn't just that. This is symbolically part of a cultural conversation that is wide like very random people will see this um small children will see this um and that's cool like that basic thing that chibnall says that he wants to do i i i think is achieved and yeah we'll go on to talk about things adjacent to that other than that extensions of that but absolute baseline it made me happy like I was a small child. And if I had been a small child watching, because I was a small child that couldn't ride a bike um, and couldn't hold a pen and couldn't run without tripping over myself, that couldn't tie my shoelaces, that couldn't do a lot of things other children could do, um, I think I would have had strong feelings watching this. And that's cool. Yeah. So I think some of what we're talking about is there's a big affirmation element and acknowledgement element and validation element to seeing yourself represented in you know a major cultural force like Doctor Who especially like Nick's is saying if you're a child and you don't necessarily feel uh, you understand certain things you are fully or you certainly don't see them depicted often so to see such a huge uh, popular culture force do that is a really big thing and that's something Doctor Who takes it upon itself to do a lot uh, you know the revived series especially is tried to get very direct a lot of the times. Uh, I think of uh, the LGBT representation. Uh, Russell T. Davis really started trying to embed, embed into the show when he took it on board and how that was carried through. Series 11 in particular, uh, Chris Chibnall's run on the show, the press run in 2018 for Series 11, I remember I was really being messaged in these sorts of terms of there's going to be a lot of representation and that's part of the big new juice of the show is you know the kind of new inclusivity we're embedding into everything we of course had the uh 
fantastic thing of Jodie Whittaker being cast as the Doctor, first woman Doctor. That's a whole new burst of representation into the show. We had Matt Strevens talking up the LGBT rep that was apparently going to be in Series 11. So that sounded very exciting before the series started. All the companion sort of announcements, uh, you know, uh, first South Asian companion in Mandip Gill's Yaz. Ryan, of course, having dyspraxia. This felt like a big explosion of inclusivity and representation in a really exciting way. I was really excited about it. I remember in 2018 hearing all these sorts of talks. And so that we quoted at the top uh, from the Radio Times some coverage of that The Woman Who Fell to Earth premiere for the press where Chris Chibnall is talking about you know, what he's doing, bringing dyspraxia into the show. I remember being really excited by all this. Were you guys uh, much in tune with sort of the coverage or messaging around Series 11 before it started or the sort of promotion of inclusivity and representation? Probably not beyond the general discussion of Geordie. I will take a second to say you have reminded me on this topic of actually a very similar um, sugar rush moment with representation in Doctor Who, and that's being an actual child um, and Captain Jack yeah, being, oh my God. That, yeah, no, that I can really connect those 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 two emotional moments. That's that's really nice. So, thank you. Um, but yeah, no, I was I was not plugged in enough to know about sort of the specific disability representation, and I'm kind of glad I wasn't because I think I would have been, I think I actually would have been a little bit more cynical coming into it, or at least would have had some of my like critical defenses up. I think the fact that I was watching this and had no critical defenses up whatsoever helped it get me at that level because it's just like oh, oh, oh wow okay how about you Min? so this might be the dyspraxia to some extent but i'm i'm not wholly certain i can't strictly remember exactly how much i was engaged with the paratext at the time certainly less than i am now although i wouldn't say that i was in i was i was in a degree less involved like fan plugged in this to doctor who but i was definitely more in it than you were at the time I was drawing you back. Point being, I think I was maybe a degree more aware of the the paratext and the messaging beginning than you were at the time. And I will note that I think in some ways the Chibnall era had some of the straightest run of positive, like, cultural goodwill towards an era beginning of any phase in New Who, like, you know, Davies obviously was coming up against the general cynicism that everybody knows Doctor Who is crap and was cancelled on purpose, and then Moffat obviously has always been a bit of a contentious figure, and was coming off the back of, you know, the mighty RTD brought the show back and now he's leaving and it's definitely going to be worse now. Uh, whereas Chibnall, honestly, it feels like the media and the press had all the goodwill in the world towards this, you know, mediocre middle-aged white dude um, <laughs> who was, you know, going to bring back sensible reason and RTD-ish grounded representation to the show that has gone off on one with Moffat. And, you know, I, in some ways I even bought into that narrative and, you know, appreciated certain aspects of early Chibnall in being a bit more grounded in some ways than some Moffatisms. And there's conversations to be had about how much that is a merit and how much it's not. And I will defend some things and not others. Um, but I remember, you know, that being sort of the narrative around it at the time and me seeing the sense in some of that. 
Um, I will actually also, as an aside, um, continuing to pat Davies on the back for representational stuff, say another um, a degree to which he is responsible for some of the moments of representation that have really landed with me. It's just the general class tone of RTD1, you know, just seeing working classness in television and in particular in genre fiction um, is some of the most that I've felt like genuinely represented by media ever. Yeah, I have. I, I, I cannot not cry at Gridlock as a complicated working class lapsed Irish Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I think that was really well put, Moon, about the uh, kind of cultural goodwill uh, that the era was riding, that it was riding into its own premiere very, very much. I think there was a lot of people were excited about this. Uh, people wanted it to be good. Uh, it felt like a very positive thing in the run up to it. I know I was excited myself. I want to circle back around to the uh, Chibnall quotes from that premiere from The Woman Who Fell to Earth in Sheffield uh, back in 2018. Before we start going through the actual sequence of the show and the actual depictions itself, just talking about how it was being outlined at the outset here. So this is before The Woman Who Fell to Earth came out on TV. This is from a press screening. And so he's identifying it to audiences as, like Chibnall says, we did a lot of research into that dyspraxia with the Dyspraxia Foundation. The script team have been working with those guys it was important because people live with these things. I have a nephew with dyspraxia. It's a relatively common thing among kids. So it's important to see that heroes come in all shapes and sizes. That's the most important thing about Doctor Who. And you're going to see that a lot this year. Uh, let's unpack what he's saying a little bit there. So what do we think of how he's framing that, his motivations in saying that? What do you two think of all that stuff? Honestly, I certainly think that it's incredibly sincere. Um, I, I have often reflected, and this is, again, um, as, as we are maybe a little want to do, slightly jumping the gun and peering ahead, but I have often reflected on his comment that he has a, a young nephew with dyspraxia, because I do feel in some ways his depiction of the condition feels like a depiction rooted in someone watching a child with dyspraxia and stenciling that on to an adult with a, without a lot of thought about the idea that maybe the condition evolves and changes over time, um, particularly for some people. And that's not to say they didn't do research with the Dyspraxia Foundation. I am certain that they did, and that's not to say that there aren't adults whose dyspraxia expresses like Ryan's, but it's always rung very true to me that this is something that Chibnall has a personal window on, that is primarily with with a, a younger relative, and in some ways that Ryan, as a character, feels like he exists in an interesting no-man's land with regards to his age. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to sort of look at representation and sort of the different forms that it can take, I think we've sort of just had a very honest chat about representation in the sense of you know the condition is is listed it's described it's present um it's it's in the form that i think chibnall is talking about doing representation in in this quote like 10 out of 10 dyspraxia is present thank you as just discussed i do have some big feelings about that i think there's another kind of representation though or a different way of approaching it that i'm probably more interested in getting out of just those initial sort of gut reactions about oh it's nice to see myself in the thing um which is 
demonstrating the creative and storytelling potential of diversity and representation. And I don't feel the interest in that, in that quote. And I don't feel the interest in that carries into the character, into the writing, into how Ryan as, as, a, as a figurative entity relates to the stories that he's in and the stories that are constructed around him. Um, so I think I, th I think this quote sums up for me where I feel like it it goes wrong, um, not by failing to do the thing it's setting out to do. Um, I should say it goes wrong for me, but it's not that it fails to set out the thing that it, to do the thing it's setting out to do. Blah blah blah. It's that the thing it's setting out to do actually feels quite narrow. It's both both large and quite narrow. This is maybe a bit harsh, but at times it can feel like Chris Chibnall. It's it's someone coming in from the outside with a shopping list of things to do for the right reasons, good reasons, good things to do. But it's, you know, it's the problem of the, you know, the, the outside saviour coming and generously helping the underrepresented people be included rather than someone coming and writing a story from their own experience. At the risk of like leaping ahead and compressing a bunch of points. It's sort of that shot of the doctor watching Ryan repeatedly fall off the bike. It's that that distance and that observation of the thing from the outside and not the integration of that thing into the story that already exists and the way that it already works. We'll sort of get back to this when we get to sort of that clip in the more focused bit of discussion. But I do find this to be something really tragic in this sort of by the boxes, we are having a dyspraxia in the story approach and not an approach that recognizes how much there is that relates to sort of dyspraxic experiences of reality in baseline Doctor Who that is already there, a, a show about a oddball who is lost in space and time and can't quite drive their go anywhere and do everything machine. There's three things you both uh, kind of raised there that I wanted to say something to because they're super interesting. One is that Chris Chibnall kind of coming into his era uh, with this push of we're going to change it this way, we're going to represent in this way. That outside kind of coming in approach is interesting like you're talking about. I think where I think that was really important is Doctor Who can, or any big, you know, cultural force like this, an institution like this can get kind of stuck in its lanes. And I think, you know, that's where people get these ideas of, oh, if so-and-so are totally welcomed and invited into a thing, there just must not have been any good enough to come up yet. When, you know, we talk about why was there no uh, black writer of a Doctor Who episode until uh, Mallory Blackman co-writing Rosa. It's, you know, it's, I think a fantastic thing about Chris Chibnall was that he kind of didn't just kind of take that, oh, you know, um, I, I welcome anyone, you know, any any writer can pitch a script and, you know, the best ones will come to the surface. There wasn't this kind of pseudo meritocracy idea with him. There was a very specific, I'm going to go specifically out and specifically try and get certain voices into it, which sometimes leads us down kind of weird paths. I know on this channel, we've talked a lot about how Chris Chibnall came into the era saying, well, we've got to do Rosa Parks and we've got to do the partition and we've got to do so-and-so before he had, you know, 
uh, writers for these stories or even specific ideas for these stories. There were just, there needs to be a Rose episode. There needs to be a partition episode, which you can unpack in weird ways. But I think his intent uh, was important because I'm not saying the last two showrunners didn't want to achieve some of these things, but a lot of it wasn't getting achieved under him. So to kind of light a fire under the show and say, we're going to hire these sorts of people specifically, we're going to seek out and do these sorts of things specifically. We're going to specifically write in, uh, you know, characters like this. We're going to specifically going to have a companion like this. The doctor's specifically going to be a woman. I think that sort of intent is one of the uh, praiseable things about Chibnall uh, coming into the show. Of course, then we can unpack how was it actually executed. And that's where <laughs> things get more naughty. Uh, but I think that kind of intent to bring into the show is something, you know, at the outset, before we get granular going into how it was actually done, uh, that feels very positive, I think, at the start. The second thing that Nix was talking about that I find so interesting was saying, it's kind of that framing of representations like the start of it. Okay, great. We've got a character with dyspraxia. Great. We've got a woman that's the doctor. Great. We've got so-and-so. Is that it? Is, you know, they just have that. And then we do, we, we do stories. It's even the framing of we do stories like normal is a bit strange because, you know, every character ideally has who they are bought into their stories. That's, you know, the process of storytelling. So the idea that Ryan has dyspraxia and that's, that's like it rather than it being embedded into the, show in a holistic way. I think some of those ideas we were playing around with there are really interesting, especially when we get into how, how his dyspraxia did f factor into his character development in series 12 and whatnot, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, and lastly, also uh, Nix was raising this a lot uh, earlier. This kind of, we were making that association with dyspraxia and a kind of um, child's a kind of child element to it. Like people can associate this in a childish way. Kids are just clumsy. You know, that's what this is without uh, taking it seriously or even recognizing, you know, what dyspraxia is specifically and that it's an actual thing and everything. This kind of association with kids, kids are going to be clumsy. Kids are going to struggle with so-and-so. I think that's so interesting because that factors into, uh, like Moon mentioned as well, the weird kind of netherness of Ryan's age that he's He's 19 years old. So much of his story is about riding a bike. So much of his story is about his granddad treating him <laughs> in a very infantilizing way. Infantilization is one of the key things with Ryan's character on the show. And I think it's really interesting to actually connect that with his dyspraxia and talking about the nephew inspiration and everything. I think there's a lot of interconnectivity uh, between the ideas we're playing around with there. Before we get into the granular discussion, the last thing I had in mind to look at was just some of the reception to Ryan's dyspraxia, unless you two have anything you want to say before I lead into that. No, go right ahead. I think, um, next, anything? Yeah, I think the only thing I would say in response to sort of that summary of points is, is a moment that has, has been discussed a bunch on who cares where some of that alchemy, I think is able to actually start working. Cause I think I, I completely agree that Chibnall has, done a, a very impressive and commendable thing in just just raising the standard um of what doctor who's production and content should demand and what it should be but at times it sort of strikes me as he's, he's, he's putting a lot of just the bits on the table and not quite being able to complete the magic or hoping that someone else can is just i'm just going to pour some some mercury some salt some sulfur uh and I think a moment where some 
like that is able to be a platform that someone runs with and does not just representation, but like demonstrate the creative potential of representation in storytelling is some of what's going on in Demons of the Punjab. Yeah. It's worth noting that that is, that is something that did kind of require the sort of eyebrow raising Chris Chibnall walks up to Doctor Who and says, I'm going to do a story about the partition. You're like, oh God, really? And it's like, oh, okay, okay, no, well done. That you've actually allowed a bit of alchemy to happen here. But yeah. Uh, well, off the back of that, I will actually say um, that did remind me of some thoughts I was having during, during the second point. You can understand, I don't necessarily agree with, but you can understand the Chris Chibnall approach with regards to writing the first female Doctor to really never at any point make the show about the fact that the Doctor has regenerated into a female body and begun identifying coextensively as a woman. And that has its drawbacks, but I I really do get, and I think everyone gets why the net decision was like, you know what, let's just play this really subtle, not make a whole thing of it, and maybe if someone pitches a story that really is coming from a place of making a thing of it, then we lean in with that, and no one did, and so they never did, and it was never a big deal, it was just something that incidentally happened, and the Doctor just sort of, you know, oh, this is a thing about me now. Huh, and gets on with being the Doctor. That's, it's not necessarily the right call, who knows, but it's a call and I get it. And I think it's fairly easy to understand. And I think a problem is that that mindset with regards to not making a whole big deal out of the representation sort of tracks out into the other representation, the disability representation, the race representation, the Queer representation is a really complicated one on this front because it's hard to say that it was particularly intentional up to a point, but you know. But yeah, I think I think that let's not make this too much the focus approach really makes sense in the context of the Doctor. Whether it was the right move or not, it makes sense. And I think it makes less and less sense with the other issues, but it ends up just being this encompassing approach. Yeah, I mean, I think to tag on the end of that, a broad point, because I think... This is an idea I might come back to um, in its sort of direct relevance to some of the clips. Is It's great to see dyspraxia on Doctor Who. It is sort of heartbreaking to me as a very, as, as a weird guy. You know, I can, there, there's a lot of different versions of this podcast that we could do where I focus on different sort of words that are attached to ways in which I'm weird. But at the end of the day, I'm a weird guy. I'm a weird little guy. Um, and Doctor Who is, is it's about a weird little person in a weird little universe. And there's something really tragic to me about this, like a dyspraxic character, someone whose weirdness is compartmentalized and is comprehended and is specific um, and is made discreet relative to the ways in which I relate to the Doctor and the TARDIS and what they do as an extension of things that are weird about me. Like there's, there's, there's something there where this, that's the real life specificity of the lived disability experience could be seen to narratively cross paths with the hyper sigil of, of the weird alternative, the revolutionary nonsense. And 
it's really sad to see that not be allowed to spark and interconnect, to that not be the kind of story that's told here, that we don't see Ryan get on board the TARDIS and learn things about himself that come from being allowed to exist in an environment and reality that is a bit different in the same ways that he's a bit different. And like, you don't need to do a big trite thing about that. But I think there is, there's just something in there that I feel like wasn't grabbed at. There's something in the doctor not relating to Ryan and Ryan not relating to the doctor and them not having like a story about the interconnection of their experiences at different levels and styles of symbolism that I think is a missed opportunity to demonstrate like the creative power of representation. I definitely have things to say to that, but I think I will save them to say bouncing off of some of the reference material because I think that will all come quite naturally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing I want to talk about before we start actually working through the 26 or so clips relating to Ryan's dyspraxia across the show uh, is an article from the 8th of October 2018, so the day after The Woman Who Fell to Earth premiered, on BBC News titled Doctor Who, How the Dyspraxic Assistant Became My Hero. And I think this one is really useful to look at because despite BBC News and BBC Studios obviously being different things, I think it gives you an idea of the kind of aspirational response the show was probably going for. Uh, with Ryan and seeing how the BBC's framing uh, the reception to Ryan and Ryan himself, I think is useful as we go and we respond ourselves to his depiction on the show. Uh, so this article starts with, ever since the 2005 series reboot, I've been hooked on Who, so I was surprised to find my highlight of the opening episode of the new series was nothing to do with the latest Doctor's debut, but involved a relatively minor character falling off a bike. More than 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with dyspraxia, and Sunday night was the first time I have ever come across a fictional character portraying my disability. This episode has received broadly positive reviews, most focusing on the spectacular performance of the first female Dr. Jodie Whittaker, but for me, it acquired real resonance when Tozen Cole was introduced as Ryan, a young man with dyspraxia. Then the article goes on for a while talking about what dyspraxia is what Ryan was doing on the show, and then it starts pulling different tweets. One of the tweets it pulls says, Embarrassingly, I've started crying when I read in an article that the new Doctor Who companion also can't ride a bike when you're a child with undiagnosed dyspraxia. That can make you think there's something inherently faulty about you, so this is a big deal for me. The article goes on to say, Don't call him inspirational. Dyspraxia doesn't have an overnight fix. You can't will yourself to not be disabled anymore. It's always there, always present, always making things harder than they should be. I don't want to see people using the word inspirational to describe Ryan. He's not an inspiration. He's a normal guy who happens to have a disability. Then it pulls another tweet out by someone else saying, I loved how they showed Ryan's dyspraxia as something he lives with, not an inspiring story of overcoming disability. As the article goes on, it pulls another tweet saying, oh my God, a character on Doctor Who has dyspraxia. Fictional characters never have that. I feel seen. Talks more about the figures with how many people have dyspraxia in the UK. Talks about a few other fictional characters it can think of with dyslexia. Uh, not dyspraxia, it's talking about dyslexia there. Making comparison to them as cousins. 
Then it pulls another tweet saying, I have dyspraxia. I was diagnosed with it pretty early and went through all my schools with teachers not understanding it or claiming that dyspraxia wasn't actually a disability. Pretty amazing to see it portrayed in Doctor Who. Uh, and it ends with, I've waited more than 20 years for this. All I can say is it's about time. What do we think of uh, all that BBC coverage? So I'm going to go ahead and say that for all I'm no doubt going to be quite critical in the discussion of the upcoming clips. Um, yeah, I I relate to basically all of that, particularly as an initial response to the woman who fell to earth, which, yeah, as, as we noted earlier, gave me some big feels, you know, like it was a real moment. It felt genuinely important and touching and... I was, you know, relieved, for instance, when Ryan fell off the bike in the closing shot of the episode. That really mattered to and continues to matter to me as a moment of Chris Chibnall not dropping the ball, not simplifying things down to inspirational, you know, you can fix it if you try hard enough narrative. And I vibe a lot with people, particularly at the time, all cheering and saying yes finally this is this is how i feel and i really obviously it would be fascinating to know how all of those various people who tweeted and the person who wrote that article feel about the general arc of the representation it's easy to see the early stuff and not necessarily have the additional data of, of how the overall play out affected ongoing reception apart from you know viewing figures which suddenly treaded down um <laughs> But yeah, no, I no criticism at all of of that article for just cheering. Yeah, I I agree, and I'm glad that it was one of the things that I read, sort of in preparation for this conversation because I think it did help me get back in touch with some of those feelings, um, and was also just a reminder of like, okay, no, for for doing what he the, the, there's worse realities, right? Like, going to go on to raise some some criticisms of what actually happened, um, but taking a moment for yeah, he falls off the bike and he always falls off the bike, and thank you, that was the correct thing to do about that, particularly in the course of the woman that fell to earth. Like, I do remember having sort of bated breath for that sort of last bit with the bike at the end, and I was like, no, come on, don't, don't, don't do this to me. <laughs> um, um, it took me a very long time to learn. So I can ride a bike. Um, it took a while. I was I was also in my late teens um, when I was learning, and I have quite a sort of like for like memory of going down a small path over and over and over again, and just being like, why doesn't this work? Um, and like, yeah, that stuff. Like, good, sure, yeah. Uh, so I think we're ready then to get granular with all this and start looking specifically through. All these clips uh, I've found, well, all these clips I've selected out, I found everything I could. Uh, if you two or any commenters uh, think there are some clips I missed out, please let me know. I'd be uh, super interested to hear. Uh, but I could find 26 that related to Ryan or his dyspraxia, sometimes in a tangential way, but usually pretty directly. So the first two, that's two together. It's Ryan on the hill riding the bike, and then it's Graham going, oh, we're going to leave you and we're going to go on the train. So let's watch those, then talk about those. Where do I start? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've mentioned this on here before. 
pretty much not an idiot. I'm actually a capable guy considering. But I'm 19, and because of the thing I told you before, I can't yet ride a bike. <laughs> Who says you can't? Me, then. We keep trying this. And we'll go on trying till it's done. Now, keep your eye on Grandad. You mean Graham? Keep your eye on Graham, then. Three, two, one, go! Go on! <laughs> go on, Ryan! You're doing it, mate! Nearly. No, not nearly. I'm sick of coming up here. I'm sick of falling. And I'm sick of this stupid bike. Ryan Sinclair, don't you dare! No. Mate, you rode it for a second. Can you stop calling me mate? Anyway, a second's not enough. You'll do it if you keep on trying. I just want to make you proud. You make me proud every day. Anyway, you're on your own getting that bike because our train leaves in 20 minutes. So what do we think of that? Ryan's introduction in the show, the bike riding, everything there. So I have some really strong feelings about some of the framing in this this series of clips. Um, one of the things that I think I go on to find is kind of missing even though it's it's more present at the start but i think it goes missing over time um is sort of ryan's internality of experience as a disabled person and i went into sort of watching the clip with that in mind um and something that really stands out is one that we start with this framing device we start the whole era with this framing device of a video of Ryan's face that he is making for the process of sharing his experience, um, sort of self-reflection to an audience. It says, hey, it's like, welcome to Ryan, welcome to Ryan's reality. And it opens with him talking like really relatably and frankly about one of the sort of trickiest emotional things about having dyspraxia, about there being a real disparity between your capabilities in different contexts and different things. And then we cut to the example with the bike. And something that really stood out to me looking at sort of the clip in parallel with the script um, is that something that actually goes missing in between um, at least the, the published script and this edited version of the scene um, is in the original script, there is meant to be a moment after Ryan's chucked the bike off um, the side of the cliff. The first emotional framing of processing that moment is actually meant to be a picture of, of, of Ryan's face. Um, I think there's a, there's a note that he looks... Instantly regretful. Yeah. Immediately regretful. Instantly regretful, that's it. And we do get, we get sort of, what we get is his hand gestures. You do... you. There is, you know, there is sort of that shot, but it, it really stands out to me that it's not, that, that goes missing. We don't get a close-up of Ryan's face. We don't get him processing this sort of emotional lapse, this overwhelm, everything that's going on here. We do get 
Grace and Graham's faces. We cut back from Ryan's hand grasping at the cliff. Um, and then we get these other two characters' faces. And I think something about that just so neatly encapsulates what immediately goes wrong here for me. We've moved outside of Ryan. Um, and I think this links all the way back to what Chibnall's talking about, you know, his nephew and sort of what Moon raises the idea that he's constructing Ryan by watching his nephew from the outside and the idea of representation via sort of ticks box list. I think what's what's missing here is this immediately sort of pulls back from being Ryan's story about himself and pulls away from being his self-reflection. Like you could compare this even to the opening montage. Um introducing Rose in Rose, where we see her whole little morning. Like this starts like it's going to do that, and then it just very subtly immediately steps away from being actually Ryan's perspective. Anyway, that I have much too granular feelings about these scenes. Oh yeah, no, I mean I, I very much agree. I I certainly wouldn't be alone in the general sentiment the for its flaws. I sure wish we had gotten the era that feels like it starts with one who fell to earth you know like it's not perfect and you highlight some of the issues the some of the seeds that will grow into being the issues right there but this is by far even here the most in focus Ryan ever is as a character and yeah it does just sort of slip through your fingers as the episode progresses such that it's already begun to wilt on the vine by the time that the framing device comes back at the end. Ultimately not to tell us more about Ryan, but as a complicated gotcha moment where it's about grace. Yeah. And that's not to say that I dislike the framing device moment at the end, but it does feel like that one thing that was the most his interiority ever is still being clawed away from him. I think it was really interesting for Nix to bring in uh, the script uh, there as well. I'm looking, there's also a point uh, when Ryan falls, uh, the script has it as bang, crash, smash. Ryan falls, collapses amidst the bike. Wide shot. Graham and Grace run to Ryan from opposite directions. Ryan's POV up from the ground as Grace comes into view. Uh, we also didn't get that POV shot. Uh, it's shot differently in the actual episode. So I'm not, I'm not begr- begrudging a director not doing exactly what's in the script. Of course not. But uh, it is interesting, like Nick's pointed out, the script seems a little more keyed into Ryan's uh, internality in the sense that at least it's kind of framing on him a little bit more. So it's interesting. Uh, the actual scene didn't come out quite that way uh, in how it was directed. Yeah, it's just little bits of drift over time. You know, that sense that Chris Trimmel, when he sat down at his typewriter to write this story, had a a fresh sense of Ryan and an investment in Ryan that just by the time it's got to production, he hasn't managed to impart on the director enough that those remain shots that stay in, or maybe they were shot and they were edited out. It's hard to say. Just the uh, red bicycle. I think that's an interesting way to start. I don't think the era is not self-aware about it because that start of Ryan talking to the camera, he talks about, you know, I'm 19 and I still can't ride a bike. It's like the era is aware of like the tension there. I'm this old and I can't do this thing, which is traditionally more associated with children learning to ride a bike. Uh, but I still feel it frames Ryan in this way that if there were no other issues with this in the era, maybe it wouldn't be noticeable. But I think infantilization is a really long running issue with Ryan and to an extent with Yaz as well. 
And so starting with the bicycle and, you know, learning to ride a bicycle and his granddad's resenting him for not riding it right or is he supporting him and all this kind of stuff. It's just an interesting kind of declaration to make at the start. Yeah, I mean, this is cheesy as hell and you don't need to do it like 2005 um, scene montage to introduce your protagonist or actually as as we didn't quite take a second over um, in that BBC article, a relatively minor character falling off the bike. Which <laughs> 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 is accidentally really biting. But like, you could have, and, and like the bike scene is really nicely filmed a lot in The Woman That Fell to Earth looks really good, but God, you could interpolate that with cycle to granddad. Oh, do you mean Graham? Like Graham doing his thumbs up on the hill. Interpolate that with like, Five seconds of Ryan at the pub with his mates, Ryan at work, Ryan just being an adult and sort of cutting back to no one. These are his like his family, and this is the, the stupid red bike reality that he feels trapped in. And that would help contextualize why he chucks the bike off a cliff. Because it's like, look, this is a this is someone who is at the brink of being a grown man, who is a grown man, like He's had enough of this. He's not throwing his bike off the cliff because he can't ride the bike because he's 12. He's throwing the bike off the cliff because he's 19 things he'd rather be doing because he's 19 years old. And actually, to some extent, the people in his life are not able to get on board with this as just a limitation on him. They're not able to focus their time and relationship sort of with him around things that they can share doing positively. It's this, he's stuck at this forever. And like, I don't think that is as a, much of a given as the script treats it as. I think that's actually quite weird. That's so interesting. We actually see Graham's friends in the episode as well. When he goes around and he's looking for, oh, has anyone heard the word on the street about strange things in Sheffield? So we see some of Graham's friends of his age. And then I think of Ryan, his relationship with Graham <laughs> in the series 11 finale it's partially resolved through a fist bump uh, and you know in the penultimate episode oh he's finally called me granddad it's like very a lot of this stuff almost feels like it was written for a nine-year-old version of the character rather than a 19-year-old version of the character so you're pointing out we don't see ryan in a social setting you know with other adults or people his age that's really interesting to think about uh, he's so framed through the eyes of graham and this is a issue in other episodes of this era you know there's a lot that's framed through graham's eyes where maybe that wasn't the most interesting choice but yeah i think that's really interesting to look at ryan's character that way yeah three seconds of him like sinking a pint and playing a computer game in clearly his mate's flat you know but actually it feels kind of weird to imagine watching ryan drink a beer in this scene yeah even though he's 19 and that, like... Yeah, and no, I think you highlight a very real thing, which is that that culminating moment of him throwing the bike is uh, very over-the-top, you know, slightly slightly hyper-real, driving-the-point-home bit, and also obviously setting up the mechanics of the chain of events that leads to the whole episode, so strictly necessary. Um, but, like, it, it had the opportunity to feel like the frustration of a grown man with the kind of grounding context of seeing him be a grown man that you hypothesize could easily have been included um or the opportunity to feel overwrittenly a bit childish and it ends up landing in you know it could very much have gone either way and it's just a little bit frustrating but in the end 
the decisions made stack up to make it feel part of that process of infantilization. If we're ready, we talked about the direction of the episode. Uh, the next clip we have is actually from the audio commentary with the director, Jamie Childs, and the lead actor, Jodie Whittaker. And it's about Ryan and his dyspraxia. So let's watch that one. So the responsible grandparents that they are, you know, bring your dyspraxic child to sit on the edge <laughs> of a cliff to have a conversation. It's always a... It does look amazing, the weather, actually. I yeah, it's like, beautiful. I mean, it's excellent grade actually done on this as well. It's, like, really beautiful. There he goes, sent down the mountain to collect his bike on his own. Dyspraxic <laughs> grandkid. <laughs> You're, you're a dyspraxic child and it's like it's, it's particularly funny because there's a commentary and you're like you are looking at an adult yeah he's in front of you right like Tos Nicole is, is again we keep saying a grown man I don't know why I've landed on that as the sort of <laughs> shorthand for an adult here for something like that is that's 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 an adult my friend um and he's not playing a 14 year old he's playing a legal adult he's not playing a 10 year old he's playing a 19 year old we don't actually know if Ryan has a driving license, but he could. Yeah, I will say I do like. So this will come up again, but person does put a lot of thought into his physical performance. Um, and rewatching this clip, like I do like the way that he sort of walks and jumps around the mountain. He does sort of move consciously like someone that's aware that they're a bit clumsy, particularly that little jump down at the end with that's, that's a bit awkward with the hands slightly out. I'm like, okay, no, I do. I, I see myself in that gesture. That's <laughs> that's the going slightly downhill <laughs> um, of someone that knows that that can go wrong. So I appreciate that. He does. It's sort of understandable, but Tyson Cole gets singled out for by far the least praise in terms of performance of the core cast of the show in this era because obviously Jodie's going to get a load because she's the doctor and she's the first female doctor so it's very important that there's a lot of saying she's really great and she is there's a lot to break down there but you know I'm not going to say that she's not a great actor or that she doesn't bring some really great things to the part um, obviously Mandip decides to deal with the paucity of her material by just just going hell for leather I am going to get a career out of having been a Doctor Who companion. Just you watch me. Um, and obviously, Bradley Walsh is a seasoned old veteran who is able to make Chris Chibnall's writing charming and naturalistic. It's really astonishing. Um, whereas Tosin Cole's in the complicated position of playing this underwritten character who slides out of focus and then just sort of hovers in the background. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, he does ultimately clock this earlier than anyone else that like his character has been let down by the entire developmental process of the show and he's not going to come out of this with a career guaranteed and no amount of trying his hardest can make him an icon in all of this and he gives a bit of a disinvested performance in some ways as he goes but I also actually do think that he is a really good actor who does as much as he possibly can particularly early on where maybe his heart's still in it a bit more. Let's watch the next clip. It's a short one. It's the doctor learning about Ryan's dyspraxia. Here's my bike. Why is it in a tree? We were up top and I chopped it over. 
He gets cross because he can't ride it. We're giving him lessons. He's got dyspraxia. It's a coordination disorder. Anyway, enough about me. This is kind of the first time they've done like so, so something something they will they will return to, like the show will return to is explaining Ryan's disability. And I don't hate that. I do think in a production that was slightly more interested in sort of playing with and having fun with the representation here, this would be the start of a chain of explanations of Ryan's dyspraxia that deliberately maybe comedically highlight how relentless explaining having a quite broad-ranging but not very well-understood disability can be. Um, I think my redemptive reading of this moment is, is, is seeing some of the exhaustion in Ryan as this little bit goes and seeing the sort of parentalism um, in his nan and Graham sort of representing a little bubble that they're in that is quite hyper-focused on this issue. Um, but leaving that aside, yeah, as a beat, I don't, I don't love it. I don't, if, if we were going to do something with Graham's ableism and his complicated discomfort with Ryan's dyspraxia and the way that that intersects with their awkward relationship, I think this would be a grand beat in that plot thread because that plot thread doesn't really happen. I don't love it. Yeah, no, pretty much. I mean, it would be a great moment to have, you know, the first inkling of the Doctor finding out about Ren's dyspraxia and talking to him about it in any way. Um, but notably, the, the clip stops, as very much the engagement with the issue does, just just shy of that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a world in, so this is sort of linking back to my point about the Doctor and Ryan's relationship. I feel like there's a lot the Doctor could say to being told that someone has a coordination disorder even if it's as cheap as like oh i think i've got one of those somewhere <laughs> it's like i mean that's trash don't listen to my these are not real script suggestions they're all trash but like that's the start of a mood board that could become an idea that could become doing something slightly more characterful with this beat the next two clips are in the warehouse uh, they're a doozy oh yes but why here? Why tonight? Actually, that might have been me. Why? What did you do? When I went to get my bag, there was this line in the air, and then it moved, and there were shapes. And? And I touched one. Ryan? You'd all would have done the same. I wouldn't. I would have. All right, the shapes disappeared. A few seconds later, that appeared. What have I done? Hard to say, really. I suppose you'll be blaming this on the dyspraxia as well. Can't ride a bike, started an alien invasion. Graham, what? Enough, love. All right, I made a mistake. But why did that guy move this thing from the peaks to here? And how did he even know it were there? Good questions. It's not your fault, all this. Yeah, it basically is. Couldn't have known that was going to happen. Maybe tell Graham that. He knows, really. Oh, so there's a lot critical to say, but I'm going to lead by saying, in some 
ways I don't completely hate this. I actually really like uh, Tosin's delivery. I really like Jody's deliveries. I think Bradley Walsh has the weakest dialogue here and manages to really sell it in itself. And a lot of what's wrong with this scene is ultimately the fact that it's an island rather than this being like a completely irredeemable thing to have included. Yeah, like I've had this conversation with family and loved ones in my life. This is a thing people say to you when they're upset and fed up with the repetitive difficulties that come with being around someone that has a disability that can break and ruin things and involves a lot of getting things wrong and not seeming to be able to learn doesn't make it okay it's really not okay it's very hurtful but i don't at all have a problem with that being part of the like representation that we're doing like that is an interesting beat like nor do i think it needs to be a very special episode at any point where graham like very specifically learns the error of his, of his ways in having said this it's how stranded it is it's it's well one actually no meta it's the broader issue of Ryan existing via Graham. This is this is more room being given again for the ways in which like Graham reflecting on Ryan is the mirror through which Ryan primarily exists. Um and I think that's ultimately not great. Um but leaving that aside, it's the fact that this this doesn't go anywhere really um and i can similarly completely i'm like really here for the believability of yaz doing a whole oh he loves you really bit particularly like she's a young cop like a lot of her day job is like low-grade interpersonal conflict de-escalation that's what we see her doing earlier in this episode. And I think that's what she's trying to do here. And I've got time for it being honestly a bit emotionally short-sighted and not really the right thing to say from the perspective of achieving actual interpersonal justice. It's just hopefully the thing to say to get everyone speaking to each other enough to go away and do something else. Um, and I sort of like that as a critique of Yaz and of general police work. That's an interesting beat as well. Also doesn't go anywhere. All of it feels a bit, this is just a jumble, you know? This is, this is all of the narrative quality street that the future didn't want for some reason is here, gathering conceptual dust. And it's really weird to, to sort of... <laughs> to get at it as a, a, as a moment in time, because it's like watching this happen live, it was uncomfortable, but I was interested. Watching it with the full sense of the narrative that's to come, I'm just confused by it. Yeah, it just doesn't line up with the reality that we later get. And I've got a bit of a one to go on, a bit of a soapbox about Graham and Ryan's relationship that this might be a reasonable moment for, and I will bring it to the... Um, to the point of the clip towards the conclusion, which is like 
when you actually look at this relationship, it's really ultimately sort of an unhealthy one that is valorized by the narrative because Ryan is a young lad who has already lost his mum. He's estranged from his dad. All he's really got left in the world in terms of family is his nan, who we will lose in the climax of this story. And her second husband, a sort of exhausting boomer, who he doesn't relate to or get along with very well, who has come into his life through the context of his nan deciding to date and remarry someone she met as a terminal cancer patient. This is someone he met first and foremost in the context that this man is at some point, probably in the near future, going to die of cancer. Then his nan dies, and this is the only person who he has left in the world. And he doesn't really like the guy very much. He's quite clear about that. And that's a valid personal boundary he's allowed to have as a human being. But this man is scared of death and doesn't seem to have much else in his life apart from this late-life relationship that he's clasped onto, understandably, because Grace is great and she seems to fancy him for some reason. Um, and now she's gone and all he's got is this teenager and the abstract sense that he should have a family. And so he's just constantly needling this young man who he doesn't have much in common with and doesn't really like him for understandable reasons. He's quite ableist towards the kid, for instance. But just sort of subtly guilting him into recontextualizing him as family and letting down those like boundaries and defenses against bonding with someone who's going to die of cancer quite soon when Ryan is already incredibly traumatized by personal loss. And that is just... That's really interesting. That is the bedrock of a good drama, if anyone were interested in writing it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this... To bring it back to to this scene, you know, like, this is... It's no great leap to make the observation that Graham is a bit of an authorial self-insert. You know, Chibnall has subsequently spoken about his own experiences as a cancer survivor, and he's, you know, this is a sort of... This is his avatar in the narrative, the, you know, maybe slightly past his prime, but nonetheless not completely out of it. Middle-aged white man who's got all of this, you know, worldly wisdom is a little bit, you know, Chris Chibnall writing himself into, into the story. Um, fair enough, you're allowed to do that. And I do think that this moment of having him go off the chain and be genuinely unreasonable at Ryan is is a moment of Chris Chimnall being remotely self-critical, remotely honest, and be like, yeah, you know, sometimes I've lost my temper with my dyspraxic nephew or whatever. You know, sometimes I'm not all wise insights into the world that I've gleaned with my many years. But then having done that that confession, this scene where he allows his, his little Avatar character to have a flaw and to have a flawed moment and to fail, he then completely forgets to continue to include that kind of self-criticism ongoingly or suggest that rewards for that character come from personal growth that come from examining those issues and working past them and just instead, by and large, lavishes rewards on Graham as a character. <laughs> this is Graham's twin dilemma. Yeah, I mean, to build off the back of that, I think this is 
a moment that connects to a wider chain that goes way beyond Ryan and affects the Chibnall era as a whole, which is a, a kind of, I'm going to pull the word dysphasia out from earlier because I like the word dysphasia, but there's a sort of tonal dysphasia where Chibnall is someone who does write like people-focused dramas, writes dramas for adults about people not being very nice to each other, um, and has a concept of Doctor Who, you know, pillar of hope, um, and is sort of grinding those gears together like someone making Barbie's scissor. Um, it's <laughs> like it's just sort of saying what is intended to have happened in a scene or an arc. And it doesn't always line up with sort of, even where it feels like the characters inside it could go or how they're relating to each other in a given scene. Things will get set up that it's like, oh, there could actually, you could spin a lot of character drama out of this. You have set up characters and drama, but having character drama is for some reason, not part of your vision of Doctor Who. So you sort of determined to not do that. And in the course of not doing that, you managed to generate an uncanny valley of deeply liminal character nothingness. Um, that's really hard to put a finger on and criticize in any particular direction because it's just not really there, even though it is. It's probably a, more, a degree more damning than I intended it to be when I started. But <laughs> the interesting thing with these two clips here is I think people remember the Blame It on the Dyspraxia clip uh, a lot. Uh, but I think some people forget in the episode that, yeah, we get Yaz pretty much right after saying, you know, come on. He knows it's not your fault. It's, you know, don't be so hard on the guy, like right afterwards, which I think is so... Uh, I, I liked Nix's idea of it as being like kindling for, you know, interesting drama with Yaz and whatnot. But I think it's very indicative of the, it's, it's such a strange little scene because the era is so like pro Graham and it's so invested, you know, Ryan should be liking Graham and they should be, you know, coming together as they do in the finale. It's like the, we have the weirdly barbed ableism of Graham there. And then it's like the show kind of apologizes for it through Yaz like right away. And then we just move on as if it wasn't that bad. Uh, you know, through the rest of the era. It's just, it's very unpleasant. Yeah, that's the bit that I really struggle with. That's the, like, like the moment with Graham, yes. The moment with Yaz after says something about how the story is asking you to read it that I don't like. If we're talking of intent, uh, the next clip is useful because that's, again, from the commentary from the director and from the lead actor. So let's listen to that. Hard to say, really. I suppose you'll be blaming this on the dyspraxia as well. Can't ride a bike, started an alien invasion. I love that. that, that I always remember that from my first read of the script. That line just stuck out to me. It's just thought it's brilliant. Great, isn't it? Yeah. Chris isn't here because he's ill. So the, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I don't get it. I'm not. Sorry. I, to, hmm. <laughs> I can understand not responding to it with the level of like personal vitriol that I am because you know this is this is very personal to me I really don't read it as a I don't know in what universe it reads as a joke yeah it's bizarre <laughs> I've just not got a clue 
it's interesting because I have honestly been a little bit put off by a few of the things that the director has said over the course of the commentaries attached to this episode, but I wouldn't say that's a thing that bleeds through into my experience of the episode necessarily. I, I found that interesting. Like I don't, I was surprised by that clip because I don't feel like how that scene is framed makes it feel comedic. It's sort of surprising that he thinks that's what, well, what they think um, the intent is there um, because it hasn't really come out in how they've directed it. So I don't, I don't understand. Sorry, this is my least deep <laughs> analysis. <laughs> I'm just, just quite baffled. Yeah, at most I can understand a director looking at the script overall and appreciating that scene in the sense that it has any meat on it as a dramatic scene. And that is how it is framed. Um, but yeah, I think in a lot of ways... Uh, is it is it Jamie Childs um, directing this one? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not the best at keeping track of directors. But um, yeah, no, I, I think by and large his direction exceeds what he has to say about his direction. Yeah, I was wondering, because, I mean, obviously you've done lots of the commentaries and lots of process in the commentaries, and um, sort of wonders how, the, how this struck you. That remark by him has always puzzled me because it's not really addressed, and then they just move right on. I, yeah, I don't have a deeper reading of that. It's just very odd that he reads it that way because, like you two have said, it's not filmed comedically and it's not scripted comedically i i I assume they're just laughing together because you know uh, jody and jamie are friends and they're just having a good time on the commentary i find it really really hard to pass exactly what was going on in that clip like when when i look at the script that doesn't stand out to me as like a funny line at all it just stands out to me as wow that's a weirdly dickish line that the script then doesn't do much with and that the rest of the series doesn't do much with so uh, nervous laughter, maybe, is the kindest way I could characterize it. It's yeah, it, it it's a it's puzzling. I don't have any uh, deeper understanding of it than you two do. But let's move into the climax of the episode, which is all about heights. So let's watch the first clip there. Ryan, yes. How are you with machinery and heights? So we go up this one. What do we do when we get up there? Don't worry, I've got a plan. Really? Well, I will have by the time we get to the top. Are you all right with this? Because if it's a problem, you don't have to do it. I do. I can do this. So this is another one where I'm gonna I'm gonna comment on the script um, and just read read the last section. Um, close up, Ryan's hand grasps the rung. He starts to climb. We're close on him. A major challenge. This is bravery. I mean, again, I so I I really like the way that Yaz says, "You're all right with this? Because if it's a problem, you don't have to do it." Like, I like the moment of someone else being proactive about it. Um, I think there's a lot of compassion in the way that Yaz says that. I think it's quite naturalistic dialogue. 
Um, it's sort of a nice moment between the characters. I do ultimately like that Ryan is not, because um, we'll get on to clips where he's sort of narratively um, shuffled through having to do things that he's uncomfortable with. Um, and I, I, I do like that this is a moment where he's given a real opportunity to opt out and is able to opt in. I think that contrasts with a lot of the bike stuff that's happening earlier in the episode where you can see he feels quite trapped. Um, and that's arguably a barrier to him being able to calm down and sort of perform in that moment. Um, so yeah, I think I think this is one of the stronger scenes for me. To make a couple of observations, um, one, continuing, continuing the thread of redemptively reading Yaz, if we were to take seriously your proposition that her earlier line slightly minimising um, the Ryan Graham conflict is sort of her Continuing to relate to him in this situation through a professional lens, this would be a sort of transitional moment where something in her brain has twigged and she's relating to him as a friend and a peer. That would be nice if I could believe that it would be intentional, but I guess at the end of the day, I don't care about authorial intent enough that that matters that much. It's a nice moment. Um, and the other thing is off the back of your, um, and this will come up again later in relation to one of the other clips, but off the back of your comments about Ryan having this as a real opportunity to opt out and opting in. What would be really nice if it is if this were mirrored by some later point where Ryan is given an opportunity to opt out and it's like, yep, I can't do this one. Sorry, I just, I know I'm much too likely to screw this up at a really important moment. I'm going to stay here and is largely validated for that, you know, is not made to look like the bad guy or an inept companion for opting out, maybe even something as cheesy as by dint of not going up the ladder or down the ladder or down the hatch or whatever, he is there at a crucial moment to spot something or stop something that's important to the resolution of the story. You know, cheesy stuff, but it's Doctor Who. That would be great. That doesn't happen at any point. Yeah, that reminds me of I, I watched a talk today by um, someone in my general extended fields that I um, respect talking about their experience of being dyspraxic, just sort of get my brain whirring and um, something that stuck in my mind that they said and that um, kind of relates to Ryan and risk and running down corridors and sort of that aspect of who in dyspraxia is that working out that they were dyspraxic, finding out that they were dyspraxic, gave them the tools and um, sort of capacity to stop putting themselves in dangerous situations because they were able to say actually some things are dangerous for me to do and I'm not good at them and I should stop and that's kind of actually a relief um, so yeah we're, go we're going to reflect a bunch I think on, on sort of Ryan danger safety and being disabled in a Doctor Who story this is this is not not the worst moment of that. I think it does fit into what will become a trend of like people putting Ryan's dyspraxia in the story by sort of dungeon mastering an obstacle for him so that we can have the whole little moment where it's like, ah, this character has dyspraxia. Um, so Ryan needs to roll a dyspraxia save. Um, to go up the ladder, which is why we've got a ladder here, because this character has dyspraxia, and otherwise we wouldn't get to talk about that this week. 
Um, that does happen a few times, and this is slightly one of them, but it's also his introductory episode, and dyspraxia has been a major framing thing at this stage, so sure. I like the note in the script that Yaz is as scared as Ryan is or should look at. I think that's nice, just recognising this is a generally scary and stressful situation. It's not this is absolutely fine for Yaz and scary for Ryan. Like, I think a slightly deeper character moment that could be available here or in these situations in general is to have a bit more sort of back and forth between characters under threat and the extent to which Ryan might better or worse at certain things or need to do more boundary negotiation around doing certain things um opens up conversations about like what people are actually comfortable with if people are scared i think there's often not enough room in the busyness of a doctor who story to have people just be sort of responding in a characterful way to the things that they're going through and i've often got a lot of time for that so i kind of like that this ends up being an excuse to take a moment to recognize that climbing up one of these things is is scary, <laughs> rather than it just being a thing that sort of has to happen in the course of an action scene. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say I would not consider climbing a ladder to be the kind of obstacle my personal dyspraxia would get in the way of. I don't think that's in the range of motor skills where I would struggle from a dyspraxic basis, but I have a crippling fear of heights like you know you get me to go up a ladder that tall i would have a panic attack about halfway because ah <laughs> and in some ways i find that it's easier to relate to ryan in the frequent ladder moments um by going yeah you know maybe this isn't even a dyspraxia thing maybe he just semi-relatedly to his dyspraxia has discovered that he doesn't like climbing ladders because climbing ladders is scary for anyone. <laughs> okay, last clip from Woman Who Fell to Earth. She died like she lived, trying to help other people. I love you, Nan. And tomorrow, I'm going out there for you. that closing scene like particularly that the last pan out to the doctor like i think that's a moment where i feel that connection to um I'm, I'm more interested in the version of the show that spirals out from this episode specifically than the one that we got um as sort of noted up front i'm really glad that he doesn't successfully ride the bike at the end of the episode 
I think if I was being like super ambitious with my hopes and dreams, we might not have looped around to doing the bike bit again. It's hard to say though, because I think that that as a thought connects to a very different vision of how this episode worked and how this series was going to work within sort of all of the rest of the architecture as it is. This is a like reasonably strong closing note. I like that Graham and Grace aren't there. It's kind of sad that Ryan feels trapped in this incredibly symbolic loop with this thing that he's desperately struggling to do. But you can see why his character has ended up here over the course of the story that's happened. It just is for a bunch of reasons that are maybe more sad than Chibnall is necessarily going for. Yeah, I mean, coming off the back of that, I will say this is probably going to connect up a few points from earlier, but like... Ryan isn't doing this for himself. Like, that is explicit and textual. He says, I'm going out there for you. He has ended up sort of psychologically painted into this emotional corner where he has to prove something. That previously he was able to externalise, my nan wants me to do this and I wish she'd get off my back about it, but now she's, she's gone. He can't wish for her to get off his back about it. He is just left with this sense that he has something to prove in this task that he has no personal stake in and is no good at and could be perfectly happy not caring about but life and circumstance has bottled him in this inescapable moment of this you know sisyphean task that he can't complete and that's a really pregnant and interesting idea i think if chris Chibble knew what he'd written there that would be potentially a really compelling starting place i think the where this goes wrong is, and this relates back to something that was said, um, I think it was in the BBC News article, about seeing, like, not seeing Ryan as an inspiration. And the author of the article cites that they're really impressed by Chris Chibnall's decision not to elevate Ryan into an inspirational figure by not having him successfully ride the bike. And I, I feel for where that person is coming from and relate at a big, like, first-order level, but taking a step back and looking at Chris Chibnall in general and the wider Chibnall era and where this all goes, I think the problem with this scene is that Chris Chibnall does see Ryan as inspirational for keeping on trying here, and that's ultimately what this scene is doing in the context of the era. It's raising Ryan to an inspirational figure for doggedly persisting at this thing rather than recognising the fact that actually what he's written is a story in which a young man has been trapped in the expectations of like neurotypical and able-minded society. And the doctor here should be stepping in and helping him break out of this loop and see that riding the bike doesn't matter and Grace would be proud of him for other things. And that never happens. And that last scene really looks like it could lead that way. And then the rest of the era just fails to have that thought. And that's often the way with, with Chibnall's writing, I find that he has half of a thought. You can see the direction of momentum leading in a, a route that could go somewhere and it just never comes together. And this is very much that. Yeah, this is bravery. Yeah, yeah. This is bravery, indeed. This is bravery. Bravery is also, sorry, I said Graham and Grace earlier there out of total compulsion. Obviously, Grace is could, could not be there in the scene. Or could she? <laughs> Oh, could she? Yes. No, that's what that's foreshadowing. So something, 
I mean, that that was all beautifully put, and I really agree with that. Something that struck me about this scene in sort of the broader context of Doctor Who, and this is going on a weird little side meander, but we've just finished a big rewatch of the Peter Davison era, actually, which is, you know, sort of relevant to this, a lot of Chris Chibnall's sort of baseline inspirational childhood Doctor Who. And an interesting thing that ends up going on, sort of to my mind, across the Davison era, is that you have companions who are interesting Doctor analogues and mirrors, but the ways in which they are are only really highlighted at the end of those relationships, in particular Tegan and Turlow. Um, both sort of have interactions with the Doctor as as they leave the TARDIS that are moments where I think, so this is very to my interpretation of classic Who, a, a dangerous thing to do on the internet, um, but I feel like those a lot of their leaving connections with Five are moments where he is recognizing the extent to which these characters have gone on, have attributes to themselves or have gone on micro arcs that reflect things about himself, where he's come from. And watching this scene, I end up wanting that, particularly given the the odd Davison era quality that can come about in Chibnall. I end up wanting that for the Doctor and Ryan, if nothing else. Like, like what's really interesting here is the closing, the opening note of this episode is Ryan speaking directly to the audience slash complicatedly to himself as a character through the lens of vlogging, of sort of public social media. And it ends with having him having a very intense, private moment of grief and entrapment and cyclicality within personal hypersigils while the doctor a completely new person watches on you know the doctor is watching him in this little little cycle having just gone through this enormous change that we're not quite talking about in terms of the change that it is as we've discussed earlier and that feels really potent that feels like the start of a journey for two characters um and I'm open to the version of that that, that that doesn't start with sort of all the immediate parallels between them coming to light, but one that works its way towards a place where the Doctor can recognize some of, like, like it's, we come away from this whole era and Ryan as a character, and I have no real idea what the Doctor was thinking in this moment as we watch her watch Ryan. And given how sort of structural this scene actually is like I have no memory of this scene until I watched it again and I'm sort of sad that we don't move on from here with a sense that like this character was thinking about this other character and I think that's reflected in the script in I think um, Chibnall summarises the Doctor's presence as a guardian angel and that just feels like the least interesting interpretation of what could be going on in this moment between two characters. Like, yeah, the Doctor isn't there to just watch, you know? I want to read out that ending of the script just so everyone uh, knows what we're saying here. So the ending of the script excerpt from the clip we're looking at says, Jump cut, Ryan standing with the bike, frustrated, grieving, tears in his eyes. 
He sits back on the bike. Angelon from on high, watching from a distance on another hilltop is the doctor. She watches as lonely Ryan tries and wobbles and falls, still not succeeding, a guardian angel. And then later, uh, Revolution of the Daleks' script will uh, kind of reference that as well. Um, But yeah, it's very interesting framing of her there. Yeah, and I think the direction does a really solid job of capturing a more compelling version of that moment than the script is offering. There are ways to shoot that that are in keeping with the quite saccharine and underwhelming... Like, if I read that in a novel, I would not picture it and think, oh, what a great scene. I would go, oh, that's a bit much. Um, but Charles... Charles is... Um, Jamie's direction <laughs> uh, does really elevate, in general, the script. I think that last scene is all altogether gorgeously shot and really powerful. And actually, um, uh, Akina's score um, again has some some nuances and subtleties to it that are really nice. Yeah, with with regards to infantilization as well, um, the a guardian angel bit really just undermines the one thing that even though we've discussed that it's quite tragic that's sort of going on for Ryan in this scene is he's having a moment by himself. He's grieving by himself doing this this thing at the top of a hill. But he's not really by himself because Chibnall's put his guardian angel here. He's not the little lost dyspraxic dyspraxic kid at the top of the hill because he's got the doctor here to be a pillar of hope and that is trite (laughs) Um, it robs the character of the one thing that he was sort of doing if not exactly for himself at least not under the observation of uh, paternal force yeah I mean what I to pull out my own last point um, to as as part of agreeing with you, <laughs> um, what I really like about the score here is that actually it's a little haunting. You know, like the note as we pan back on the Doctor emphasizes that there is a subtle wrongness to this alien figure intruding on this deeply private moment, and I think that's a really a much more interesting, much more authentic to the character of Ryan way to play that scene. And I say that as someone who's advocating for the Doctor, nonetheless potentially pivoting off of this to intersect with Ryan's life in a positive way, because I think that's part of who the Doctor is. They are, you know, an otherness, a slight wrongness in the world. They are out of the sane, safe bounds of normal society. But the idea is that they are one of those that intersects with it positively. They are a good monster that, you know, net barrels into the world destructively to its benefit. And I think that juxtaposition is part of what's compelling about the character and something that in general Chris Chibnall fails to understand. Yes, I mean, I have a whole bit that's much too long for this moment, but about um, cyclicality and trauma and science fiction and speculative fiction and the ways in which cyclicality in terms of sort of literal time loops um, to um, non-chronological storytelling can be used to capture a sense of sort of entrapment and in particular trauma and grief and the extent to which then subverting those sort of structural beats um, can then be symbolic of an escape like 
into the weird, into recovery, into alternate realities, um, very interested in sort of disrupted cycles. Um, and it feels like all the bits of that are here. It's just that's, that's sort of not what we're going to do. This episode very much sets up Ryan, the main character of the Chibnall era, and yet is described in an article that is being effusive about this as uh, <laughs> I think I'm probably going to misquote this every time I quote it off the top of my head. Um, Minor. Yeah. Yeah. See, there's, there's, there's several layers to that. Like, he's a minor character. Yeah, a, rel a relatively minor character, which is also making a point about infantilization, if you're willing to read way too much into it. <laughs> Are we ready to move on into the Ghost Monument? Yes. This is a great iconic clip first uh, from the Ghost Monument. Let's watch that. If that's the way it is, time to stop messing about. What are you doing? Fighting back. No. Guns, never use them. They're shooting at us. I know. They're going to kill us with their guns. He's got a point, Doc. Put the gun down, Ryan. What's your better idea? Outthink them. You can't outthink bullets. Been doing it all my life. Uh-uh. Sorry. Call of Duty, man. I've trained for this. Who's next? See, that's what I'm talking about. That's how you do with things. Taking out the aliens. No, no, let's reload! Where's the reload? Where's the reload? Made it worse. Just a little bit, yeah. Oh, there is a lot going on. There's a lot. There's a lot going on in that clip. Um, trying to be at all focus um, on things that are going on in that clip. So, obviously, Ryan does that very well. Um, that's some very good shooting robots. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Honestly, I quite like the idea of having a sort of parallel, real focus on Brian doing something physical that he just can't do in the first episode. Oh, and surprise, also, you know, disabilities are complex and spiky. There's things that he's practiced a lot that he's really, really good at. Now, it doesn't make sense that he would be any good at this on the basis of having played Call of Duty. Um, and it is really infantilizing as a specific thing to have chosen, like, my god. <laughs> so yeah, net complicated. Not a big problem with him miraculously being a sharp shot. No, not, like, even a problem with that if it came out of absolutely nowhere. Honestly, more of a problem with the tone and sort of character age aspect of this, sort of once again not taking a moment where we could just treat the character as an adult. All of that being said, I do kind of love this for Ryan, having watched just a lot of clips of him falling off a bike. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, which I, I guess connects back to my point about I'd quite like to see some of the contextualizing moments of him throwing the bike off the cliff, because like, Ryan has a very frustrating life, and the fact that we end up seeing the bits of his intense emotional, like, arguable dysregulation ends up being infantilizing in a way that I don't think it even necessary, necessarily has to be. Like, look at the last day in a bit of Ryan's life. I completely understand him slightly losing it in this moment with just pure overexcitement that anything good is happening and that he's good at anything because he's been in a sort of terrifying grief blame alien drama 
like bicycle space opera situation that then left him nearly blowing up in the vacuum of space. And now he's here and shooting robots. And like, sure, sure, I think a 19-year-old guy is within his rights to do some howling at that stage. Yeah, I mean, you know what would be great would be if the robots didn't get back up again and the ethical discussion about the pros and cons of use of violence extended forward from that. That would credit Ryan as an entity within the narrative who can affect change rather than someone who tries to do something, does it very competently, and the universe basically pops him down and says, no, Doctor's right. Yeah, no. And no one takes a second to be like, wow, Ryan, that may have been contextually the wrong decision, but that was very impressive. For anyone to have done. Are we ready for the next two bits from the Ghost Monument? More ladders. Let's watch. I want answers to this planet, and I think they're down there. You sure about that? No. Come on. Why is it always ladders? We need to get out of the tunnels. It's light. This exit ladder will take us up and out to the surface. What's up there? A settling field. A settling like the gas. That doesn't sound good. We're running out of air and options. So let's go up. You okay? It's not my favorite thing. Climbing ladders under pressure. Can I just say, you are amazing. Am I? Think of what you've gone through to be here, and you're still going. I'm proper impressed. Thanks. If it helps, focus on facts about acetylene as you climb. Did you cover it in MVQ? I think we might have done, yeah. Got to be quick now, Ryan. Sorry. <sighs> so, I was today years old when I realised that that is a possibly deliberate parallel to why is it always snakes? <laughs> like snakes and ladders. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm entertained by that. <laughs> um, this scene here, that conversation they have at the end there, is sort of the real world drab, you know, microwave prefab burger to the hypothetical imaginary banquet of the Doctor and Ryan relating along an axis of the ways that they are respectively, you know, a sort of fantasy, figurative portrait of qualities which I would say I have always identified with as a dyspraxic person, and a real bounded, you know, human realist portrait of what living with dyspraxia is like, uh, that me and Nix have been generally generally positing as a potential way that including a dyspraxic character in the show Doctor Who could potentially be a really colourful and intellectually rewarding exercise. Like, this is what we get, is, is the Doctor doing a good pal check-in, you okay? And doing a very weak lemon squash 10th Doctor, your great moment um, as some amount of emotional support, and that's better than nothing, I think. 
and then shoehorning in some leverage for some exposition about acetylene because we're trying to harken back to the 1980s, harkening back to the 1960s, attempting to realise, yeah, like Sidney Newman's vision of the show is educational. Harking, harking back to the edge of destruction, specifically. <laughs> Listing slightly wrong space facts into the void. But yeah. I'm not sure if there's a, a, a way to convey this properly in audio, um, but just looking back over the script, the Doctor, can I just say you're amazing, Ryan? Am I? Doctor says the next bit. Ryan, thanks, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... It's very characterful. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, building on sort of what I said about ladders earlier, I don't... I understand why this happens and happens over and over again. I understand why we do the bit where there's just sort of a thing that Ryan needs to overcome his dyspraxia to do. However, I do find it just a bit uncreative. I don't actually think there is a strict need for this to be how the story is constructed. Like, yes, in universe, a ladder is here and Ryan needs to deal with it, but this is a, a, a decision that has been made by writers. This is this is how the story is being constructed and it's being constructed to make use of this character in this particular way, generating these kind of moments, giving opportunities for other characters, again, to relate to him via his disability and relate to his disability as a barrier to something that everyone needs to get done. Like, Ryan is trapped in a perpetual bike-themed space opera where... It just comes up again and again that he needs to do a little dyspraxic thing in order for the plot to move along. Um, and yeah, there's that. that is fine. I'm not saying that that's awful, but it's just not the most creative sort of use of that representation that I think is available. I mean, what's really depressing about it, and I say this as someone, a rare person who finds the strengths of the ghost monument easier to focus on than the flaws. I'm not going to say they outweigh them in a strict numerical sense, but I just watching it, I find that the good parts stick with me and the bad parts slide off a bit. Um, and that's nice. But, I mean, taking a moment to focus on one of the many, many flaws, um, what's really depressing is that this was written by Chris Chibnall, so the sheer lack of creativity on display is that he did the ladders the previous episode and in this episode he's again remembered that ryan needs a bit about his dyspraxia and has included the same obstacle and that's that is really a crunch moment where particularly watching with the benefit of hindsight you really see the wheels come off of how much vision there is going forward <laughs> no nor is it a very high ladder not to be that harsh but like I'm not surprised that Ryan is fine about that ladder. It's not that high of a ladder, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's the edges of something interesting in the idea of struggling under pressure. And like in a world where we're engaging with Ryan's psychology and the sort of traumatized hyper-attachment he now has on the bike thing as a result of Grace's death, like building that out into 
even building out like like my god you could have this moment between the doctor and ryan by themselves for a second be a moment where the doctor says something about grace or is it in the shape of like this this is obviously a lot isn't it this is the last time we were in this situation things got really hard again not like got a world of ideas for exactly how you would do that but just like you've, you've got this this is actually the moment where they are thrown back together in a tiny high pressure parody of the situation that they met in that killed someone Brian deeply loved and led to the going round and round in circles on the bike that we saw at the end of the last episode that we saw the doctor watching and now she's alone with him having been there for that having watched him from a distance having connected with him again and now now this like do something with that um i was just gonna say can you imagine a version of this episode and this season that retained the framing device of Ryan's little vlogs, you know, like that would be such an easy in it's cheap. And we would be rolling our eyes at its cheapness in a universe where anyone thought to have that motif, but it would be such an easy in for you could have the episodes practically as is and bookend them with little minute Ryan recounting, you know, the wonderful journeys that he went on with the Doctor and some amount of his interiority and some amount of dramatic irony and it would be anything. Even when they get back, just I, I think I would find one that's just titled Hey exclamation mark that opens with I went to space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we can't keep going consecutively because the next few episodes I couldn't find anything in uh, really to do with Ryan's dyspraxia for Rosa, Arachnids, uh, Pitting, and Demons. Uh, but Kablam absolutely does. Uh, so let's watch this first Kablam clip. You're a ninja at this, Ryan. This was my life before you. Mind you, should have seen me when I just started. First month, total nightmare. Takes me a while to learn things physically. Get there in the end, but just some stuff takes me a bit longer. Luckily, I had mates who covered for me in the beginning. This episode seems more interested in Ryan and his dyspraxia than most of series 11, I think. What do we think of that first clip there? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, we will let the gap between Ghost Monument and Kablam speak for itself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I like that moment. I, peering ahead a bit, I sort of like the Ryan dyspraxia stuff in Kablam right up to a point, which is sort of a, a beautiful microcosm of Kablam in general. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, in all of itself, that is that is a good moment that forms part of the period in which Kablam really seems like it's going somewhere positive. Um, it's another case of Ryan explaining his own disability um, as like a little refresher in case the audience didn't catch the first couple of episodes. But again, they're it's possible to conceive of a world in which this motif has any weight and sort of gestures towards the fact that that really is a cycle that you find yourself in as a disabled person. You have to constantly make decisions about disclosure and explain your condition to people who don't fully understand it or haven't heard of it before or whatever, particularly as a dyspraxic disabled person, because as is widely noted, it's not a hugely understood or discussed condition. Um, and yeah, I think, I think his summary to Kira there feels like someone who's had to do this a lot and has a sort of boilerplate 
this is how I describe it, particularly to a pretty girl quality. And yeah, I, I sort of like the note the doctor saying, you're really good at this, actually. And I say, yeah, it took some practice, but with practice, I can get good at things. That is all what I want to see out of like just the base layer of dyspraxic representation. You know, the, the bothering to include it at all, assuming that we're not going to get a really deep exploration of it. This passes the first test with what I would consider flying colours. Yeah, very much agree. I think it's also actually stronger in the context of the upcoming bit. Yeah, so let's look at our other two clips from Kablam then. Let's watch. Get ready to stick it to rule number one. You did this in your last job? Yeah, once. How'd it go? Really badly. Sprained ankle in the final warning. Come on, we have to find Kira. I should let you know I have a coordination problem. Not super serious, but you know, makes life really interesting and frustrating and difficult, especially at moments like this. You don't have to come. I can find Kira on my own. Mate, that's not how we roll, is it, Yaz? Nope. We're all in. Dispatch, here we come. I mean, that really works until it doesn't. But yeah, on the, on, on the subject of things sort of falling apart as they go. Honestly, I, I really like that we get um, Ryan has to explain dyspraxia again in the course of the same episode. Um, I think that's inching towards the idea of, of doing a little bit of a bit. And I like that under slightly higher pressure, it's both a more sort of rushed explanation and also one that carries a little bit more sort of raw emotional sharing like i think those those two little beats actually work quite nicely together and i think there's a world where like if someone like stephen moffat was playing with this structure or idea there's a lot that could be rinsed out of it as like a comedy beat that's genuinely on ryan's side um which is a complicated thing with dyspraxia in general um and sort of riffing on comedy um, generating comedy at, really actively um, out of disability-related topics. Obviously, it's incredibly sensitive, but also I think there's a huge amount that can be done, particularly if you're going to look from like characters' actual perspectives, um, if you're going to build bits out of sort of interesting and offbeat aspects of reality. You know, there's... there's, there's there's interesting things that could be done with that beat. I think the start of it's done here. I think Ryan generally opting for this and the note that he's done something sort of parallel this daft before in reality 
and therefore both has sort of a palpable sense of the risk going on here and a general it feels grounded that he's up for it at all i do think jumping off the thing onto the other thing is just like like it feels bizarre i know i've just said that doing the same beat again worked quite well i think doing the same beat again with no sense that you're building on it or iterating or riffing on it doing it sort of straight up again for the same output i don't get that i don't think that works very well um and i do think it pushes it's an it's another example of a situation just pushing ryan like way further than he said his boundaries are able to go and expecting him to do something that is basically unreasonable mm-hmm. it's just a bridge too far like i love Tosin's performance in in that first bit the like general bullet point through having dyspraxia I, I really like the way that he inflects all of that and the little like determined no this is who we are moment is such a sweet little encapsulation of the idea of this as a point in the character's journey where he's still getting something positive out of being a Doctor Who companion, both, you know, um, Ryan and perhaps Tosin, um, of, you know, like, this is still a, a rewarding learning experience in which he is being challenged and challenging himself, and this is affecting him positively as a person, and he is making brave decisions, and that is all really nice and comes together really nicely, and he does the brave thing, and it goes well. He manages it. Woo, yes! Million to one chances, of course they should have been splattered at the bottom of that ramp, but whatever. They did it. Well, hey, disability didn't get in the way. He had the option to say no, and he chose to do the thing. And I think it was absolutely all completely the right choice. And then, because circumstance requires it, and circumstance didn't have to require it, but it was written to, he is asked to do something a whole degree more dangerous. Calmly says... I think that might be a line for me, having just a minute ago said I have a disability that makes all of this harder for me than the rest of you, and the text absolutely demands that he nonetheless just put a penny in the slot machine, turn the crank, do the overcoming his dyspraxia and succeeding again, because it can't conceive of letting him just sit this one out, or doesn't have time to have him be pressured into this and fail and the other characters have to acknowledge that they pushed him too far you know like there's just not time for anything other than well he overcame his disability through effort once so he can do it again and it's just just a bit where that all falls short Urgh. or he's he's stuck here now on that specific one and that is interrelated to the plot in some way yeah indeed that would, it would not be hard to have him have to stay up there and that actually deliver him somewhere useful but Particularly given how often the Chibnall era has like really awkward moments where characters need to be split into groups or like the conditions of things need to change. This is it's it's interesting that it's overlooked that this is actually a thing that could be utilized to create like sort of character legitimate reasons for a group to split up or go in different directions or something to happen in a different way. Moving forward from Kablam, nothing in the Witchfinders. It it takes you away. There's nothing directly about Ryan's dyspraxia, but I think it is interesting that he goes along with, you know, how the doctor writes on the wall to deceive uh, the blind girl, Hannah, in the episode about, you know, what they're doing to ostensibly keep her safe and everything. Uh, Ryan takes part in that uh, with no issue and he gets a little shirty uh, with Hannah as well. 
I thought that was kind of interesting in that it's, you know, it's to do with um, disability representation. Uh, it never directly equivocates anything with Ryan, but just kind of the manipulation of Hannah uh, being something the episode is chill with just feels kind of um, of a piece with the era, maybe. Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. Like, the Doctor initiates that manipulation, and I think that's an interesting and compelling character beat for the Doctor. The, you know, gestures at a version of the character who is more interestingly manipulative, a bit more McCoyic, um, that flitters around the edges, um, seems to be an interest of, of Ed Himes, but doesn't quite materialise into being a concrete aspect of the character, at least yet. In, in the televised version of the character, it certainly never sharpens into focus. But Ryan is just sort of left going along with the Doctor's Gambit, and we don't get a sense of whether he's fine with it or not fine with it. He just complies. And yeah, the most characterization he really gets here more is to do with his, his ongoing parental abandonment issues, which one could arguably tie into the general theme of infantilization of the character. He behaves a bit childishly here. He doesn't display a great deal of emotional maturity when speaking to a vulnerable younger person than him which is unsympathetic characterization that could be could be interesting and deliberate although i don't know this story also has ryan finally reconciling with graham so it doesn't present a consistent position on on ryan i think yeah this is an episode i like quite a lot of pieces of but i think ryan suffers a little bit for not being already a strong shape of character and just having to warp a little bit around the needs of quite a busy story. Like, there's just sort of, there's not really room for him to take issue with what's going on because he feels empathy as another disabled person. And I think that's, that's sort of a symptom of the overall extent to which dyspraxia has been slotted in where there's room for a dyspraxia moment, but not used as a inspiration to shape the character's emotional responses or the stories that they are involved in. Yeah, I mean, it's it's notable, really, that the division of labour here ends up being Graham goes and gets a juicy scene with the... Solotract. That's the one. Um, yeah, yeah, with, with the Solotract projection of Grace, uh, which I think Ryan ultimately is around for a few seconds towards the end of and part of the illusion breaking down. But, like, the meat of the matter goes to Graham there, um, while Ryan gets to look after Anna for a bit. Um, and that's not necessarily flawed, but as noted, Ryan doesn't do any relating to this abandoned, disabled child in a way that he, as a frequently infantilized, disabled character with abandonment issues, might. He's just sort of at a bit of a remove from her. And that could in itself be compelling, but not really with the amount of time that there is for it. And there's, it wouldn't at all have been a worse idea and could well have been a better idea to show Graham left behind looking after a child and engage with an amount of his complicated relationship with the idea of family through being put in a much more overtly parental position that perhaps he would rather be in than this complicated having to look after an adult and have Ryan get a powerful and compelling scene about his nan who again the entire series started with framing itself around his grief at the loss of grace and has somehow pivoted to being more about graham's yeah 
So those Graham kind of notes, yeah, those are concluded in uh, It Takes You Away and in the Battle of Ranskoav Kolos as we have the fist bump and then we have the real union of them in the finale where they're working together. He's calling him granddad, the fist bumping. It's all ooey and gooey and lovely and that's all resolved. It makes it very clear that the tension in the blame it on the dyspraxia stuff is long since, I don't know if resolved is the right word, ignored, set aside. It's it's gone. They're together. Uh, they're best of pals now. Uh, and as we continue into resolution, we even see, uh, you know, Graeme, we see how close they are in contrast to Ryan's dad, Aaron, and how he's portrayed in the episode. He hasn't been around. He wasn't at the funeral. Then he's off doing business with microwaves. Uh, the Dalek seizes onto Aaron and there's a big emotional climax as Ryan's trying to save Aaron from the Dalek and keep him in the TARDIS and everything. Uh, so let's watch a clip from that, which does bring up Ryan's dyspraxia. So let's watch that. with dyspraxia just sticks out to me yeah my god he does just consistently refer to himself as a child and it's really strange it feels like a weird moment to bring it up honestly it doesn't feel i mean i know like what has gone on there has been quite physical but everything about not bad for a kid with dyspraxia just feels like it comes from like a Saturday morning cartoon and not the moment that the like general swelling strings uh telling us has just happened in the narrative. Like don't know what the correct response ought to be in that moment. Maybe a bit of crying <laughs> a bit of howling? I don't know. But yeah, it just it just it just doesn't feel like it carries the weight of anything that's just happened, and and comes back to the fact that sort of Ryan's self reflection as a thread is something that's got a little bit lost. Somehow he's not managing to say any more about himself, like like eternally falling off the red bike. Ryan is stuck saying the first three things about himself forever, sort of regardless of what the situation is, whether it's a ladder or base Amazon, or rescuing the dad that abandoned him by shouting a Dalek into the sun. He's Ryan, he's got dyspraxia, but he's carrying on. I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with your point. It is just a slightly odd moment for him to bring it up. It's not wholly inappropriate, but it's just just a little off balance. That was a feat of strength, but not 
massively a feat of coordination. Just practices a complicated condition, but yeah, it just it does speak to that sense of just just even Chris Chibnall, the author of the character, finding that he has nothing new to say in this Ryan focused story. This this the most Ryan focused story. Yeah, it sort of feels like what he would say in his vlog about this moment. And it's really not what he should be saying in his vlog about this moment. Because this is quite a big moment in a number of ways. It feels like Ryan is celebrating having successfully done his side quest of the week. Like, loving his dad is the wobbly ladder of right now. With sort of all the same structure and stakes and a similar level of like well done you did do the thing from the doctor like this is ryan's ryan challenge of the week and those have one structure um even if the thing they contain within it is so emotionally enormous it will just sort of gravitate back to form when all you have is dyspraxia everything looks like a bike (laughs) if we can move into series 12 both spy force have some relevant stuff why don't we watch the relevant bits from Spyfall part one. So that's, uh, it's a clip without commentary and then it's a bit of the same thing uh, with commentary. Let's have a look at that. I never used to stuff in the car. I should have got it in. I'll get it in next time. You've been sick. Oh, though. buckets. Is this Cardiff or is it, it is Sheffield? Cardiff, yeah. It is Cardiff, yeah. yeah. In some warehouse. This is actually very slippy, very dangerous. Uh oh, he's pulling up. Let's go. Get your form right. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's shooting. Look at that form. It really pained you to have to be not very good, didn't it? Yeah, but you know what? I was getting actually the buckets in and Chris can verify because I can show you can see the rushes and I was actually making a lot yeah, of shots. Yeah, and I wrote this in because I knew you played basketball. Yeah, I know. And then, but then I had to make you not as good because you're yeah, Ryan. Yeah, because I'm Ryan, I know. And I was really upset because I was thinking, damn, they're going to think I'm rubbish. Everyone's going to see this. Did you do all? <laughs> how, were the other, <laughs> how were the other guys that day? Were they, they're were actually good because like, I actually played with one of the guys in there. Oh, so basketball. I'm going to start by saying that commentary track is not the deepest commentary track I've ever heard. <laughs> like, bless Tosin. That's a very, very sweet, very earnest, just being a young lad. <laughs> yeah, I think I enjoy it more than the original scene. Like, I'd quite like that, that just layered over the top. <laughs> um, I mean, I come to this with the, I don't know how much this would be controversial opinion, that Ryan should just be good at basketball, or Ryan is allowed to be good at basketball. I think it's sad that Tosin doesn't get his sort of Matt Smith football moment, where something that he's just very good at is able to be demonstrated straightforwardly in the show as an aspect of his character. And honestly, I think I would prefer 
if we have to have it at all, the whole basketball arc, um, which is Ryan's arc this season. Well, in the first episode, you try and shoot a hoop and it, and you, it doesn't go well. But later, you need to throw a ball. But yeah, insofar as the basketball arc is what we're doing this season, I think it would be honestly more interesting to have him just be good at this because this is a thing that he's practiced and cares about and feels relaxed doing and is a part of his friend group and sense of community and personal identity. Like it is not beyond dyspraxic people to be good at sport and sort of going back to the thing I said up front about habit forming behaviors and the things that can come from doing things repeatedly for the first time. There are some sport related tasks that I'm like really good at. A lot of them I'm terrible at um, and none that I'm good at, at enough in a coherent enough group to be anything but a liability for any sport. But that really doesn't rule out this or this particular act like aspect of this sport for Ryan. Like I think you could easily have him, for example, slightly physically struggling with the busyness of moving around the court, which is generally the thing that really really gets me. I I completely lose track um when that many people are moving at once and become a complete liability to myself and everyone else. Um but you could easily have Ryan sort of sort of struggling with that aspect of it, not bumping into people, not being able to do other things. But someone deliberately passing to him because they know he is actually very good at throwing the ball when it comes to it. Because, and I feel like there's a lot of that. I mean, obviously part of this comes from just Tosin's interest in the sport and being good at it in real life. But I feel like a lot of that's carried in his physicality in that moment. And yeah, I think it, it would be more interesting to set this up now as a thing that actually he's just good at and then come back to it later and have other characters be surprised by this, expect this to be a Ryan Dyspraxia moment TM, wherein he does go up the ladder and well done. And in fact, he is just very straightforwardly not bothered by having to do the thing. It's like, oh, this is cool. I'm quite good at this. Great. And it goes well. And that is how you subvert the pattern that's been set up so far. I don't think you that would be as interesting if that wasn't the pattern that has been set up so far. But yeah, it just feels like another long-form bike ladder situation that is a bit complicatedly insulting. Yeah, Ryan doesn't need another bike. Um, I get that the point of this scene is, you know, to have some variety and not literally reuse the bike motif, but nonetheless be introducing... But yeah, no, be, be reintroducing to the audience after the show's been off-air for longer than usual. Um that Ryan has dyspraxia. Remember, that's one of his two character traits. He also has issues with dads, but to be fair, that's been resolved now. So he is down to one character trait. So everyone remember, he's got dyspraxia. Um, but again, you know, as you point out, there are other ways to do that that balance some of the the aspects of the condition a bit more evenly. Or you could, you know, have an opening montage of him just tripping up on regular things in a literal or figurative sense, you know, going to open a can and he pulls the ring pull off wrong and can't open it. He stubs his toe, he drops his phone and the screen breaks, you know, just a general little, ugh, the many Kafkaesque indignities of day-to-day -day life as a dyspraxic person. And then he's playing basketball with his mates and he just shoots a perfect hoop because actually it's not all, you know, 
failure and indignity, some stuff you can get good at. And I'm not saying that there aren't dyspraxic people who like basketball who aren't struggling with it, sure. But nonetheless, I think, as as Nick's well highlights, this just feels like the laziest option for this this idea. If you have to do this idea at all, do something more interesting than this version of it. Yeah, and let the actor demonstrate that he's good at this, because we let Matt Smith do that. And it was a bit ludicrous, and I find the scene a lot more charming. Now I know sort of the actor's backstory. And this just, like, yeah, just just feels like a moment where another actor could have that level of, of a moment. Like, looking back to sort of the general idea of Doctor Who as this big sort of shared public forum um, and piece of art of general community interest like I think it's sad that Tyson gets to be in this and doesn't get the opportunity to have a silly little moment written in that's about him being very good at a sport that he's very good at because he's on Doctor Who be nice for him (laughs) we're allowed things that basic Matt Smith was it's a bit sad just Chibnall saying you know like oh I wrote this in because I know that you're good at basketball but then I had to write you being bad at it because it's it's Ryan. We hear more Tozen Cole input uh, on our next two clips. So it's no commentary first. It's just a couple of seconds to see the clip and then we rewind and we see it with Tozen's input. Let's watch that. Shall we go up? I'm sure they'll be able to find other jobs, won't they? Hey, watch this little trip. Watch this little trip. Where? It's coming, it's coming up. Yep. On purpose? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, nice. so hammy. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Nervous, you know what I mean? It's a little nuances, man. Can't believe you're reviewing him on the commentary. I am. Wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> you be giving I, him a grade I'm, at the end? I'm not hammy at all. <laughs> I can never get anything right, man. <laughs> oh, hard cut to, like, several hours of deep analysis of the character material that Jenna Coleman got for Clara, you know, like... It's not in the script as well. We can see there's no stage directions at all for them going up the stairs. So that Tozen's totally right there. That was all him. Yeah, and I really like that beat. Like, is well physically acted. Going back to what I was saying, I do think one of the things that he really brings to the role is, like, an interest in the physicality. Um, And it is exactly the sort of thing that I do all the time. Um, um, I think it's well scaled and managed. Like I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it happens in a moment where it's not a big deal. He doesn't fully fall over. He just sort of mucks up and very quickly catches himself and gets on with it. Like naturalistic moment of straightforward granular representation. Yeah, yeah. The the sadness here is fundamentally in the paucity and the fact that he's having to work this in just to bring it into things in general fundamentally i think it's it's a great move on his part a little bit from spyfall too let's watch that you can't level ryan good lad i can fly a plane can't ride a bike but i can fly a plane yeah weird um as someone who has a coordination disability and can drive and has has a remarkably all right time with driving, I think partly because it entertains some primal ADHD that's going on in my brain. 
more than it's a problem for certain parts of my dyspraxia. I'm sort of roughly here for the concept of what's being got at here. Um, I do wish Ryan could be psychically freed from the prison of the bike. <laughs> I feel oppressed by the bike at this stage, um, and I feel that he's oppressed by it as well. In the vein of redemptive reading, I can sort of believe that flying a plane in particularly flying a plane via the medium of the doctor helping you is sort of more like playing a video game. Yeah, he's got a little phone game to do it, hasn't he? This is where the fact that I've not seen Spyfall more than once and deleted most of my memories of it shortly after it was over in order to make room for the psychic weight of um, that thing with the doctor and the master that happens. Things like this have just been cleansed from my memory with the bleach of that. Yeah, looking at the script, he is using something on his phone. Which makes me feel even less like the bike comparison is necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a similar flavour to that uh, resolution scene, isn't it? Where it's just like he's saying, I've dyspraxia, uh, but I did this well. And then it's just like a very small comment yeah which you know isn't isn't unbelievable particularly for someone who has slightly oppressively had his life and identity framed by this you know this being framed back at him his whole relationship with graham like there, there could be something in this if it was going anywhere it just i don't think this i don't think critiquing this or understanding this or looking at the internality of this is the representation that we're getting i think this is the representation that we're getting yeah it's it's a cute enough moment in itself no hard objection to the moment it's just the degree to which it really represents a slice of the like you know uniform infantilizing prism that has formed over the the course of the seasons that we're clipping past. Actually, given we're on the subject of Ryan and driving, I'm going to take a second out of analysing him doing straightforwardly physical tasks to say, a thing I, a Ryan beat that I would have liked to see, and this is ov obviously like well personal to my taste and interpretation of things, but I would have liked to see some of Ryan properly interacting with the TARDIS and the TARDIS console, um, because like one of one of the things about dyspraxia is this like often quite discombobulated relationship, you know, not just to space and time in the abstract, but to processes, sequences, the operation of things. And I think some of the extent to which the TARDIS requires a mix of complete poetic logic, an interest in just scrummaging around with all sorts of different bits in a way that sort of is confident but also potently nervous and just sort of hitting it sometimes like the the whole process of interacting with the TARDIS is a weird techno dance poetry that I would really like to see Ryan in communication with and I'm sad we don't get any of him potentially having a easier time with the logic of the TARDIS than other characters, not because dyspraxia magically makes him better at understanding it on any level, but in part because he's got less of an instinctive sense that like things should operate according to a consistent order and that he should be able to get things right. I can see a lot of people 
like Graham approaching the TARDIS as a bus driver and being like, well, there must be a gear stick somewhere. There's an on button. I know how, like, this is, I know how vehicles work. I drive a vehicle every day of my life. And being genuinely a bit surprised when Ryan coming at it with no such preconceptions that he knows how it works or how to interact with it, but just approaching it very honestly and curiously and pressing things and being open to its logic is able to get it to do little bits and things in ways that he just can't get his head around because it refuses to obey the sensible, consistent, grounded rules of a bus. Yeah, I think, honestly, that something like that would be near the pinnacle of what I would have loved to see with Ryan as a character interacting with the things in Doctor Who that I consider very, like, metaphorically potent as a person with dyspraxia. Actually, I, I will take a moment to highlight, because I think we managed to really skim by this, kind of because it's not really discussed in much of the literature about dyspraxia that we were touching on when, when setting up our entire parameters for the condition, but I don't think we've really noted the ways that it interacts with time, particularly apart from mentioning them in passing. We've, we've gestured that time is one of the things that it trips you up on, but I, I think we didn't really frame that particularly. So just as a, a brief aside, it's my brain doesn't know how long a second is and therefore doesn't know how long a minute is, and therefore doesn't know how long an hour is. And it will never know those things. Five seconds might feel completely different from one five seconds to another. And it depends... Like, everyone's like this a bit, obviously. You know, time flies when you're having fun, whatever. But, like, that turned up to 11 is my experience of time. What I am doing vastly dictates how fast time moves, and that is so much the case that it's quite palpable. And so I can be really punctual if I'm paying a lot of attention to time, and if I'm distracted in the least for what feels like a moment, I have lost all sense of the track of time. And that is one of the ways in which I find Doctor Who to be a very potent metaphor for dyspraxia. Yeah, very, very much agreed. And the sense, like, while we're doing a bit of a bit of this flavour of thing, the sense that time and objects and like time and space and the things within them, like minutes and hours and objects, both menial and special, behave as if driven by their own capricious magical logic. Because you are a force of chaos in the universe that you can't entirely control. You destroy your objects, you lose your objects, you lose yourself in time in space you lose objects in time in space like you're scrabbling perpetually uh, a world that not only doesn't make sense changes when you don't look at it and sometimes changes when you look at it because you are changing it i think that's part of why i have a bit of a complicated poetic relationship with the concept of like the tardis in particular within doctor who because it just the idea that you're living in a living world that is on the brink of making sense, but doesn't really, and that you're in constant communication with, and might just sort of fuck you over at any given moment, but can work with you if you're willing to work with it, speaks to my like ex experience of reality. And I'm not big on magical thinking. This doesn't reflect sort of things that I believe about how the universe works. It just, which is part of why I think I enjoy it translated into speculative fiction and sci-fi. You know, 
why I like Douglas Adams so desperately much. And yeah, that's these are all elements of the interiority of the experience. It would have been nice to see in Ryan as a character moving through a big and disorientating universe. In some ways, would have liked to see traveling on the TARDIS to be a leveling factor in this group rather than something that just sometimes throws up dyspraxia-themed quick time event. Yeah, uh, very well said. Do we want to move forward? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Orphan 55, Ryan romance, but not Ryan dyspraxia. Then Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror does have a relevant clip. Let's watch that one. Dyspraxia-themed quick time event. Deep breath. And Ryan jumps. Yaz grabs his hand. He's made it. Yeah, I, I, I like Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. This is a perfectly adequate moment. <laughs> it's such a condensed Yaz. Here we go, Ryan. No way. Graham, go on, Ryan. Yaz, you've got this. Get out of the ladder, Ryan. <laughs> you don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, it's very missable as well uh but i guess it is in there yeah i guess some points for this not being like three minutes long it's there but it's not overwhelming then nothing in fugitive or praxis that i could see not really in can you hear me either but it does develop more of kind of the basketball stuff just in that it's got lots of ryan's mate that he was playing basketball with then in haunting of villa diodati I may, you guys might find this one relevant. Let's watch it, see what we think. Such a jaunty air. Is it popular in the colonies? Uh, yeah. My nan taught me, but I always get the keys wrong. But she always said there's no reason not to try. I should practice more. But I confess, I prefer to write. Even though my efforts are weak, I could never hope to match the achievements of my parents. Minan would say stick with it. Hmm. So, Ryan has no idea who Mary Shelley is, does he? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't land as if he does. I honestly am quite sentimental about this one. I think partly because, well, two reasons. I think it captures the, it comes the closest to capturing the point about sequence processing and time of any of the bits that we've done really at all. This feels like a more granularly sort of weighty and interesting little dyspraxia moment. It's also tied into sort of character beats and conversations and Ryan get to have, getting to have a moment that's not like, that is about his dyspraxia, but is actually defined by him doing a thing imperfectly but that still being charming for someone else and that being like really adequate for what that moment needed so yeah then that's just just by virtue of being a reasonably well-written scene <laughs> works better um but also on like a bit of a personal level if there's anything that's my like riding a red bike it's trying to play musical instruments i'm not good at it um, I don't think I'm ever going to be good at it. And I have been doing it for many years. Um, and I really relate to the straightforward hand problems. The best way I could put it that Ryan is having here where, you know, information, what the music is, goes in. 
and what comes out at the hand level is a slightly garbled glitched version of what you were trying to do like that that really speaks to me um and i think it's portrayed physically well i'm really glad that it's in a moment that just isn't making a big deal of it i honestly really appreciate the little dichotomy here of uh Randis Praxia moment being set up as like a little parable for the audience you're gonna be imperfect at some things that it would be really nice to be really good at. But you know what? Some people are gonna find that really, really annoying. That's just a fact of life. Some people are gonna be kind of pissed off that you're, you're no good at the thing. And you're taking up time and space in which they could be charming and sexy. And other people are going to not care that you're not that good and care that you're trying. And that's that's what your life is gonna be. It's gonna be full of a mix of people being able to tolerate the ways that you're different at different levels. Yeah, that's really, really nicely put. Also, people are going to fancy you anyway, and a lot of this stuff isn't about the performance. It's about demonstrating that you're interested in the world. You've got th- like It's the difference between trying at the bike for no clear reason and demonstrating to others that you try at things because you are interested in the universe. And this is a much more optimistic vision of like what's good about Ryan being his relentless willingness to try. Yeah. Ascension doesn't have much in it, uh, but the Timeless Children uh, does. All right, Ryan. They're on the march. You know what to do. We're relying on you. Did I mention I've never been the greatest show? Now. Defeated the Cyberman. Well, me, technically, it's me. There are always more. Get inside now. Now! It's almost like Ryan unlocks a greater level of auto infantilization by succeeding at a thing. He isn't rewarded with maturity, he is rewarded with getting to be 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just. It's just not good. Not my most deep reflection. Um, we were saying earlier, also, this is also not a deep reflection, we were saying earlier that we appreciate that Ryan actually says Cyberman. Traditional unit fashion. In the sort of early, yeah, sort of early classic Doctor Who sense. Um, you know, you've got the Postman and the Milkman and the Cyberman. He comes and delivers the Cyber. <laughs> I mean, Ryan does have a sort of reviving robot theme. That's certainly a thing that happens to him twice. That he thinks he's solved the issue of robots with violence, and it turns out that there are more. Which actually, these two scenes together act as a sigil that unlocks the Cybermasters. <laughs> That's ultimately what Ryan has done. By shooting the robots that come back to life and then destroying the Cybermen, he allows those two ideas to be combined through him, um, and thus the Cybermasters reign eternal. Bold take. The series twelve uh, basketball arc—it's—it's it's really an arc. It's like a binary thing. He doesn't do it in the first episode, and then he does do it in the last episode. I think it's a very chimnal storytelling thing. Like he's spoken directly uh, with Unit. How his idea was: what if I took Unit apart so I could bring them back together? It's like this 
it's not really an arc because there's not like there's literally not an arc to it. It's just a, like it's more like a switch. Yeah, this kind of storytelling. So many kinds of patronizing at once. And I think the the thing that I find, other than you know this being a set of decisions that were made, really bleak about the ways in which it's patronizing. And I think this comes in part from a lot of my like first teenage layer of being involved in sort of media discussions and debates about things um, on the internet being of the flavor: is this appropriate or inappropriate? kind or not kind, interesting or not interesting writing of a female character. Well, the female character in the story says, I love to be written this way at a particular point. So it must be fine because this is a character-driven and empowering set of decisions. And it's like, well, no, because they're not real. And they didn't say that. And that's not the end of this conversation. It's like something to be part of the conversation. And sort of in a similar flavor of thing, I really struggle with this moment being sort of sold back to us as, look, this is what Ryan wants. Look at how happy Ryan is. He did it in the hoop. We should feel happy for him getting the basketball thing that he wanted. And the way that that just sort of seals the Uberos of Ryan's infantilization by making him the defining perpetrator of it, despite the fact that he is a fictional character and nothing in this scene had to happen, let alone like this. It's a very exploded diagram of my problem at that moment. But No, I think I think it was a point well made, if in a very dyspraxic way, which is what we're ultimately here to demonstrate. Um... <laughs> uh, do we have any other thoughts on In the Hoop before we move on to the final clip? Yeah, I mean, to to vaguely confer Nix's wonderfully made point, like, there's a sort of, there's a dichotomy, right? Like, there's the hypothetical idea of the better season of Doctor Who and Ryan that we envisage spanning out from Woman Who Fell to Earth, in which Ryan is freed from the bicycle by meeting the Doctor and realising that maybe proving his ability to others is not the pinnacle of living as an adult with a complex disability and this is like the the dark enlightenment at the end of the other path yeah it's also like i am not in any way placed to talk to the like race aspect of this moment and ryan as a character because i am a very white guy um, but it's certainly something I've seen referenced by other writers and commentators on this character and this moment in his arc. And like, it did stand out to me watching it. I was like, really, really, is this going to be the, the, the peak of Ryan's arc as a young black guy with dyspraxia is that he successfully throws a basketball adjacent object at some Cybermen? Is that is that the representation we were promised? Is this is this is this the pillar of hope? I I don't like that from sort of any angle. And it's not like there's a world where that couldn't be a thing that is made to work. See 
my rough sketch for a point that this is just something that he's good at and cares about and is part of his identity and this is an opportunity for him to just use it straightforwardly heroically. Yeah, it would be a bit of an obvious signifier, but I think it would be reasonably justified by coming from a genuine interest of the actor. But yeah, it just cloys with a general sense that if this were the 90s, he'd be riding a skateboard into action, you know? Like, mm. Let's move into the ending from here. So this is literally the ending of Revolution of the Daleks, Ryan's last episode, and it returns to so much from where we began in The Woman Who Fell to Earth. So let's watch that. Okay, three, two, one. Go! Yeah, go on, Ryan. You're doing it, son. Go on, son. Come on! Ryan. You okay, son? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, look, definitely further. Yeah, maybe. No, definitely. I was looking online earlier. Some weird stuff going on in the village in Finland. Troll invasion, so the locals are saying. Yeah, I saw that. And you know there's a quarry in Korea that's shut down because the workers are reporting they saw gravel creatures come to life. Psychic paper. <laughs> These will get us in anyway. Yeah, Finland, Korea. Well, then what are we waiting for? I'm not done here yet. Yeah, but look, I mean, this... You'll be black and blue. I don't know if you heard about me, but I'm Ryan Sinclair. Me and my mates, we saw off everything from giant spiders to a conscious universe. We fought Cybermen, Skithra, Morax, the mighty Pating. It's gonna take more than a bike to scare me off. Ain't that right, Grandad? Yeah. Right then, well, come on in, jump on then. Tries and we're going to save the world, eh? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Get ready. Three, two, one. Go! Go on, Ryan. Yeah. Go on, son. Yeah, so no uh, no praising BBC News article on how this was all worth it in the end. Yeah, so a few a few specific notes to pull out. And this is, I was sort of reading along the script with this one as well. So I find it sad that we come round from sort of what we were saying earlier about Ryan's grief and his sense that he needs to do this for Grace and that this is what Grace wants and the pressure that that grief puts on him um, and how we land back it to quote the, the script. Grace looks admiringly on. She smiles at them. There might even be the slightest nod of approval. Like, I know that that's a note for 
the actor, but there might even be the slightest nod of approval. Feels like a slim pickings for Ryan after all this. <laughs> the end of the day, Grace just really, really wants him to be able to ride a bike. <laughs> she he's he's trapped in a complicated emotional blood pact with a ghost about whether or not he can ride this bike down this hill. And that's it, really. Um, as is sort of bookended by a later note. Pull away slowly as in the distance, the small figures of Graham and Ryan keep going. Ryan cycles a little way, falls off, gets up, and so it goes. We must imagine Ryan happy. I, I know, right? Like, the thing about that is... And I think this is actually where the straightforward representation and the symbolic representation and my feelings about this as a story about a dyspraxic character start to diverge wildly. Like, they've diverged before, but this is really the point of no return. Because I have two completely opposed opinions here. One are that... Like, I'm glad that he falls off the bike at the end. I think that was the right end for that scene, if this is going to be the end scene that there is. Um, there is something very subtle about the timing that I find, like, I don't find funny, because it's not funny, but it's, like, comedic adjacent in its relationship to time. And I think that, I think there was no way to get around that. I think that's just, just how the beat lands, and it's just a bit awkward. But yeah, I think that's that's as right as it can be for what it is. I'm not happy about what it is. And I think this is where just long form failing to have an interest in how you creatively integrate representation into your story can accidentally land at you saying things that you don't intend to say in the more symbolic and sort of metaphorical realm and how it can sort of drag you away from your underlying representative point working, Seaman's point about, you know, there's no BBC article praising how wonderful this moment was, because it wasn't. And one of the reasons it wasn't is because there hasn't been an interest taken in what a story about a Doctor Who companion who has dyspraxia could be. Ryan is stuck going round in the same little circles that he's been since he was introduced. And I don't know, Chibnall might get some comfort in this relentless gravity of... I don't even want to call it realism, because I don't think it's... It's, 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 it's realism in a sense that I think is actually limiting to the hyper-reality of the human experience. It's realism at the expense of a bunch of actual reality. I think it also raises its head with Yaz. It's very, very present in the just bleak emptiness of the companion support circle. And it's very here, this sense that no, it was a toxic dream for Ryan to think that he deserved better than trying and failing to ride a little bike on a hill. And so it goes. Yeah, I mean, I think there is in the Chibnall era an elevation of powerlessness in several ways that is sort of, you know, part of the complicated 
legacy of things that it inherits from absorbing the Davison era at a very, very formative age and sort of restaging the battles of the Davison era mindlessly <laughs> and without the nuance present in the original flawed staging of those battles. Um, and I, I like the Davison era, but this is certainly restaging some of its issues. Um, but like, in general, the Chibnall era, from many angles, elevates, you know, a sort of static powerlessness for its characters who never move anywhere, and for the Doctor who can't interfere and change history and has all of these stories that are ultimately, you know, trying to recapture historicals as they were when the Doctor did less, affecting the story in a way that feels very, you know, it, it can have its moments. Demons of the Punjab is great and is generally in this mould, but, like, the overall trend is a bit claustrophobic. And I think the, that sensibility in Chibnall latches on to the factoid about dyspraxia, that it's not a condition that can be straightforwardly overcome, and goes, yes, that's the thing about it. That's that's how that fits into my worldview of the sort of profound cosmic necessity of stasis. And that's the message I'm going to drive home about it with, you know, the overarching bookends of these scenes. Yeah, which we've not got into this moment because um, it doesn't directly relate to dyspraxia, but to talk a bit about um, sort of Ryan's confrontation with the Doctor before he ultimately decides to leave. There's an element of, of Ryan actually being the mouse, mouthpiece there for saying, no, the Doctor's an unhealthy habit. Like, the Doctor misrepresents the idea of escape from problems. And the mature thing to do is to reject that. Um, and I think that, I mean, there is a whole set of ideas in there that are very interesting. But they do ultimately come across quite relentless. And it feels sad to be where Ryan lands emotionally as a character coming off some of the potential that we saw for his dynamic the doctor and with just you know the universe um back in the woman that fell to earth yeah i'll say like ryan genuinely remains my favorite character of the chibnall era in much the same way as tegan remains my favorite character of the davison era i have similar big feelings about both as people who had a real chance to have an interesting dynamic with the Doctor, where the Doctor relates to an ordinary human being who is nonetheless like them in many ways, and who stumbles through the show completely failing to ever have that connective experience with a Doctor who is much too busy with other things to engage with them in more than a fleeting way, and otherwise just treats them as generic companion, and ultimately leaves going, you know what, fuck this. And I don't even hate that. I think it's a much sadder iteration of the story than it could be to just have a story where the Doctor connects with these characters, which is what I desperately want. But I don't think it's wholly artistically invalid. It's just quite sad as a story to be telling. But I think what really irks me is, is you know, this final scene, which, along with, obviously, um, the general wrapping up of, of Ryan's departure to be going off to be in a non-existent Big Finish box set just robs any of that of any real dramatic potency, which again, getting into the restaging of the Davison era without the strengths, 
you know, at least Tegan's ending meant something. But yeah, yeah. I actually, I do also want to take a moment just to um, take cheap pot shots at the scene on a much less profound level and say the acting's really weird. Like Tosin and Walsh both seem, or Bradley and Cole um, both seem sort of awkwardly disinvested from this final scene in terms of performance, and I can't blame them. They come off like people awkwardly info-dumping in an advert for a new NHS phone line. You know, they're, they're talking like people who are just randomly dropping chunks of things for the audience to know into conversation in a way that is, you know, part of the course for the Chibnall era in general, but they're just putting really the least effort into selling it that either of them ever do, and it really rings... And then that's all washed away with the blinding light of grace and that whole moment, which, you know, it's the only it's the only reading of that that gives it anything, isn't it? Um, also, we're doing small pot shots. Um, specifically, Ryan's line, me and my mates, we saw off everything from giant spiders to a conscious universe. I find deeply unintentionally funny because I really like the conflation here of really big spiders with a conscious universe, you know, like a cosmic event. The interaction with many people would be, you know, reality changing, life changing. Um, but, you know, Ryan and his mates, they saw it off. Get out of here! We met a conscious universe and we're like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I just find that really funny and sort of weirdly surmising um, of the era's lack of sort of philosophical interest in itself. To be fair, actually, I, I should give this little speech points for Ryan reflecting on the concept of Ryan, a thing that I've said that there isn't enough of. And he's, he notes that he is scared of things more substantial than bikes. So while he is still framing himself on a Deeply, I say. I want to say a bike-themed binary, but it's not even a binary. Like it's just this is it's a singularity of a spectrum, like the Ryan Sinclair bike scale of bike. But on that, he is. And to quote the uh, actual, I won't say stage directions because more theatre than TV. But close in on Ryan, iconic, heroic. Strong. Killer smile. It's just nothing. It's not. It's not anything. Graham stands behind Ryan again, as Grace once did, supporting him, ready for the off again. Victory for Graham, truly. He got everything that he wanted. Yeah. Do we have many or any other thoughts on dyspraxia-specific stuff in the ending, or do we feel? concluded i would say you could keep putting pennies in me and i would be able to keep going for hours but i do think that 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 sums up the essence of most of of my thoughts on the matter i think yep agreed ah uh, then then we've done it that's it uh we've looked at all the ryan relevant stuff over the era wow <laughs> okay well that feels like the place to conclude our time here today but of course these conversations don't conclude they continue on uh, so thank you, both of you, for sharing your insights today. And thank you, listeners. As always, let us know your thoughts as well on Ryan, representation, the specific topics, 
and clips and discussions we went through today, where you approach this from, feel free to comment or write in yourself too. Cheers.